come from? Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? It came from outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. What the fuck's up, man? This shit is a bitch. The fuck is up, Denny's? I think it's fucking working. I think it was just some tactile bullshit. Oh, shit. It's not plugged in. And we're off. And welcome back to the podcast from outer space. It's your boy, Rob Scott. We got the Korean cowboy, a.k.a. Billy the Kid in the studio. What's going on, gentlemen and world? And as always, it's Ryan Scott. Aloha, far and wide. And we are reporting live from the Richmond studio. The humble abode of Billy the Kid. Yes, and I'm so excited to have Rob in my humble abode. It's been like <laughs> four years since that's happened, but uh, yeah, we're we're gonna do some Ouija later on, and hopefully, uh, maybe conjure some demons. I, I've been coaxing them, and he Rob has. He's been talking about it nonstop all day. Yeah, all and right, Rob right. has not been having it, but yeah, I don't really fuck with demons, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, this is episode 119. Where we'll be discussing the Ouija board. The Ouija board, as some may call it. Autumn is upon us, finally. And we are kicking it off with, as Rob and Billy have both alluded to, a dive into the paranormal, I guess we could say. Now, in this episode, we are getting into the history of the Ouija board, taking a look at its possible roots and ancient origins before looking at the popular parlor game's early ties to the spiritualist movement here in the U.S., leading to its mass production by Hasbro. We'll also get into some popular stories and even warnings from various religious movements, as well as scientific studies into how the Ouija board works. And as always, we'll pepper in a good amount of pop culture's role into the entire development of the Ouija phenomenon. Is this simply a children's toy or parlor game? Does the Ouija provide a link between the known and the unknown? Or perhaps the board is providing a deeper look into our own subconscious? We are looking at all these questions and more in today's episode, so get your candles lit, hit the lights, grab your spirit boards, and who knows, you know, maybe we'll contact the other side live on air, interview some dead folks or uh, demons, and see what this Ouija stuff is all about, am I right? Hopefully not some demons, but yeah. Hmm. But maybe. Uh, (laughs) I hope some demons. No, I'm just kidding. No, truthfully, no demons. But I'd like to, you know, it'd be cool to talk to some ghosts or something. Yeah, Some now spirits. Spirits, spirits, guys, come on. Exactly. That's the yeah, technical term. Uh, now, for those who have no idea what this is, which I would assume is nobody, I would think that at least everybody listening to this episode or found their way clicking on this podcast has in some capacity dealt with a Ouija board or at the very least knows what it is. Absolutely. I think everyone has heard of a Ouija board. I mean, it's kind of involved with a lot of, like, children's kind of stories and stuff. Children's stories? <laughs> well, no? What kind I of guess, stories? I guess, like, when you're growing up, I, not, like, fables or anything. I'm just saying when Ghost you're growing legend up. type or, shit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like Bloody Mary or something. Yeah, okay. I know what he's talking okay. about. Yeah. Now, okay, so if you have no idea, the Ouija board, as it is most widely known, uh, because Ouija is a trademark of Hasbro, 
who inherited that from the Parker brothers. Um, and it's often used to refer to any board of this type. A spirit board, a.k.a. a talking board, is a flat board. Uh, scribed on this board are the letters of the alphabet, the numbers 0 through 9, the words yes, no, hello, goodbye, along with uh, variations of different symbols and graphics depending on additions and manufacturers. Now, the way it is commonly used is two or more people, and the tale goes that it works best with a male and female, sit around the board and take a small heart-shaped or teardrop-shaped piece of wood or plastic known as a planchette, and users place their fingers on the planchette, pose a question, and watch it as it's moved around the board to spell out words or messages. And that, my friends, is a seance. Now, as always, before diving into the history on this one, what experiences do y'all got with the damn Ouija? Uh, when did you first hear about it? You ever used the Ouija before? Uh, what do we be- do we believe in it? What do we got for the Ouija? So I've heard of Ouija way back in the day, you know, way back when, <laughs> back in my day. But um, no, I've 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 heard about it a lot and for a long time. Uh, I had one experience with a Ouija board, actually, ironically, with uh, Rick, who's in my musical project, Survive the Night. Okay. Shout out. Um, is that where the name comes from? You guys were trying to survive well, the Ouija attack. Or wh- something. What's hilarious is Rob earlier. <laughs> When I was telling him about the story, when we were going to Spirit of Halloween to pick up the Ouija stuff, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, we were trying to get yeah. a Ouija board earlier. Couldn't find one. We got a tablecloth with a Ouija board printed on it, though. So we're going to do a little DIY homemade, homemade okay. experimentation later on tonight. Yeah. And that might I work mean, better. It might. I've heard that it does, actually. Okay. Because it's more connected to you since you put your energy into the board. Well, um, yeah. So I remember this was back in 2006 when I was still like a senior in high school, but um, I went over to Rick's sister's place and she had all these crazy like venomous snakes in her apartment. She was like super into snakes and had like a gaboon viper and like all these, she had like a rattlesnake, copperhead, just like in these cages. So that was cool. And I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, this is, this is dope. And we were like, oh yeah, we're going to do Ouija. We're going to play Ouija. So with the snakes. No, but that would have been <laughs> way cooler. I don't know why I didn't think about that first. Um, but anyway, so we, I, I don't really recall a lot of what happened, but we played the game at night with candles lit, the whole deal, and um, something weird happened, and it freaked everyone out, and we kind of just stopped playing it, and we kind of just never played And I've never played it since, but I can't remember exactly what happened. I don't think it was anything substantial. Okay, but, uh, and would you say you believe in like spirits connect some type of spirit realm connection to the board? I guess I don't know. I do believe in the supernatural to to what my cognitive experiences have you know allowed me, but uh, I'm not sure if that's a direct portal to that world necessarily. If that's what you mean. Okay. Okay. Okay, Rob. What do we got? But they did survive the night and then named their band after it. <laughs> okay, very good. And uh, Dude, we cracked up so hard at that because I was like, that is the cheesiest thing ever, but also amazing at the same time. Um, I think, I mean, I, obviously I haven't um, like fully dived into a Ouija experience myself. I mean, like, yeah, we found that one at the antique store and it was kind of creepy. 
and you and Jed fucked around with it to scare Nick Laos, but I've never like sat down to hold like a super serious seance with it. So I would like to think, you know, since I do believe that there is another dimension or you know, I I believe that spirits exist. I believe, you know, I've seen I've had paranormal experiences myself before. So I definitely believe that there is some some type of whether it's like your soul or your spirit or whatever you want to call it, I think that that exists. Whether or not you can connect with something from the other side through the use of the board is yet to be determined, at least in my opinion. Okay. And now, so this is why you're scared of it because you're like a believer, um, I would think. Because I do recall what you're talking about. We used to mess around with the Ouija board. Uh, I would do it actually with your ex-girlfriend using the male and female dynamic. And we tried numerous times. Um, now, obviously, I myself think it is just a parlor game. So maybe that's why it never worked for me. Just and a parlor you, game. Yeah, a simple parlor game. And I think you have to, like, practice to get good at it. But, you know, I've dabbled, messed around with Ouija seances um, as a young lad. Never had anything weird happen. Never experienced any sort of paranormal. I mean, I mean on this episode, I'm using the Ouija board I got as a uh, mouse pad. So maybe we'll see if some spirits come out of that. Once again, not taking it seriously. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> so <laughs> so I think we've run the gambit of beliefs um, with the three of us here. So let's first dive into the history. How did this come about? Where did it start? Why is it still so popular? I mean, like I said, this is just a simple parlor game, right? Where did it come from? Where did it go? Yeah. And, Cotton Eye Joe. And do you, what do you guys think of when you think of parlor? I love the term parlor game um, because I was finding that coming up again and again in my research. And whenever I think of parlor, when we used to go to the church, my mom would volunteer at the church and she would bring Rob and I, and we would have to sit in this front, they called it the parlor of the church. It was this front room that was really creepy with like an old couch and rug, and we would play with like micro machines and shit in that parlor all day should have been playing with a ouija board <laughs> i know right exactly. we should have, is that where you, like uh what i mean what do you guys have any weird childhood memories with like parlors when i when i think of a parlor for some reason and this makes absolutely zero sense so don't even try to rationalize what i'm about to say <laughs> but i just think of like an old west like Saloon. Old timey West Saloon. It's like, oh yeah, I'm back in the parlor. Okay, okay. And I'm like, okay. all right, it's like somewhere in the back of some like old saloon. Like yeah, I think that matches up. Deal. I I always think of that old creepy room from the church. You know, I think that that aligns. Yeah, just old and weird and decrepit and kind decrepit. Of spooky. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that's how it's supposed to be, but yeah, I definitely. I also think back to the uh, parlor at the old church because okay, okay. there's definitely a creepy vibe in there. Yes, parlors, creepy places. Now, all right, let's get into the history. So right off the bat, uh, here's a shocker that adds a bit of, I guess, eeriness, creepiness, and possibly some credence to the legitimacy of these boards. And that is no one really knows the true origins. Um, or at least the origins and precursors to the Ouija board are not widely agreed upon. 
You know, it can't be traced back to one specific definitive point in history. It seems that talking boards' origins are ancient and multiple, seeming to have been independently reinvented and rediscovered in a wide variety of locations across the globe. Now, some sources have argued that in Greece, a talking board type instrument was used by Pythagoras and his disciples as early as 540 or 550 BC, as the philosopher and mathematician would encourage his disciples to gather in a circle around a table on wheels, sitting on top of a stone slab where signs and symbols were inscribed, and the table would move around to reveal revelations from an unseen world. So basically like a giant Ouija board, right? Talking to the gods, dude. Yeah. These are, Seeing what Zeus is up to. Yeah, see That's what Zeus wild. is up to. Yeah, it is pretty crazy, like the, the massive scale of it. Now, in Rome, similar in, instruments were popular as early as 3rd century AD. And in the 13th century, the Mongols are said to have used talking board-like instruments for divination and instructions. Now, Rob, you have dove into some research on this Egyptian thing. What do we got here? So... Perhaps another early link to the Ouija board is the Egyptian game of Sanet or Sanat, played with 10 pawns and 30 squares along the board with hieroglyphs surrounding the game board. It's said that oftentimes three birds would be inscribed along the board, which is commonly related to the soul in Egyptian culture, but for some reason made me think of the Bob Marley song. Okay. Uh... But one was even found in the tomb of King Tut. So, you know, pretty popular guy at his time. So, you know, if this guy's playing it, everyone in Egypt's probably playing it. Am I right? Okay. Now, is this a game or so this sounds like to me like a chessboard? So it does kind of look like that. But from my understanding, just from, you know, watching a couple of videos about it and like backstories on Egyptian culture, it seems like the point of the game like if you like on the board it's not just set up like a chess board there's like different hieroglyphs on top of the board as well and you're using your pawns to make it across in what historians and like archaeologists think is like you are the pawn and you're making it from this world to the afterlife and that's why people were buried with the game so that after they died, they were supposed, like your loved ones or family members or whoever were supposed to play it with your soul to make sure that your soul crosses over to the other side properly. Mm, okay. So it's like the wire. So it's kind of like. Pawns be out quick. <laughs> Unless yeah, they dude. some smart ass pawns. <laughs> yeah. Omar over here, dude. That's okay. crazy. Well, question, Rob. Do you know if um, anyone's discovered one of these in like an Egyptian like tomb with a mummy or something? Well, he just said that. <laughs> King Tut, dude. <laughs> King Tut had one in his tomb is what I was saying. Yeah. Before oh, we yeah, kind of like. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I right, mean, right, right. I'm, I didn't look into like how many were found in tombs or sarcophagus, but like the, the most famous is the one that is found in King Tut's tomb because it was like a gigantic like size of like a dining room table type oh, Jesus. board. Okay. So. Okay. That's crazy. Uh, well, I believe they have it in like a British Museum or something. Right. Okay. Exactly where it belongs in a museum. <laughs> right. Okay. So I guess what people are saying this is some connection because of the whole dead aspect or what? Well, like I said, I was saying like 
the although archaeologists and historians have not yet found definitive proof that it was t- used to communicate with the dead, a lot of their findings are saying that basically you're taking the pawn to cross it from our world to the spirit realm. So maybe you're maybe not in the sense of like you're using the planchette to move across the board and like actually have like questions answered by a spirit, but you're like helping it's still like some type of communication with the dead because you're like helping their soul across to the other side. So it's like a more of like a synonymous thing, I guess you could say. Like it's a similar game, but it's not it could be like a derivative of it, you know what I mean? Okay, okay. That or like an early influence like oh right. like we're playing this to get their soul across. What if we could actually like talk, talk. to them? Okay. Yeah. So pre uh like a first like a precursor. Step. Yeah. Right. Okay. Origin now, story, dude. Also, real quick, I wanted to interject here. I I think it's really interesting because when you look at Egyptian culture and the history of ancient Egypt Egyptian culture as we know it, like most of most of what they were involved with in terms of like burials were was about that like process of into the afterlife. So it's interesting that they would kind of utilize a game like this. Maybe there's some truth in all this, right? It's kind of weird. There might be. Okay. Okay. Now, now others have linked precursors to the Ouija to ancient writing devices from China, China, uh, Fuji, Fuji or planchette writing, spirit writing, automatic writing, Became popular during the Song Dynasty, which is 960 to 1279 AD. Now, the use of planchette writing was a means of necromancy and communication with the spirit world, and this continued for some time under special rituals and supervisions. Um, Now, Fuji divination flourished during the Ming Dynasty, which is 1368 to 1644, Uh, so much so that the Zhejiang Emperor himself had a special planchette altar built in the Forbidden City, which was the center of the imperial city of Beijing. Um, now, Fuji was eventually forbidden by the Qing Dynasty, uh, which was 1644 to 1912, but continued underground and is currently practiced in Taoist temples in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Malaysia, as well as folk shrines throughout China. Now, Fuji was a central practice of the Quantin School, uh, which first originated under the Jin Dynasty, uh, which also influenced the writings of many Taoist scriptures. Um, so, you know, I guess you could kind of see these like precursors. I don't know. I mean, what are you guys' thoughts on all these precursors, um, especially like the, the Chinese stuff or the ancient Greece stuff? I don't necessarily know how this ties back to the Ouija as kind of a ritual type of thing. I do understand the planchette, you know, what you had just described with the Chinese. It's interesting, but I'm just not really kind of seeing a tie. Yeah, so I feel like this all kind of plays into Ouija lore more so. Like, maybe these weren't necessarily precursors, but... You know, fucking Fuji altars in the Forbidden City. That already sounds like a plot right out of an Indiana Jones film, doesn't it? Right. And, you know, an ancient origins, even even though they may be a stretch, they add a bit of, like, foreign mysticism um, 
which was incredibly popular the time the boards went mainstream, like the 19th century. Because you know how we talk about like, uh, I think we got into it on our Crowley episode, like him and that other occultist, Helena Blavatsky, like they would always, they would go study like Buddhism in India or some some type of like religion in China and they would come back and be like, we've got mysteries from the Orient. And it was seen as like this fantastical, like mystical culture. I think that just kind of plays into like the Ouija lore as we'll see. But I I don't know. I mean, does that make any sense? I mean, those guys are making a hell of a film nowadays. Fuji film, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's <laughs> yeah, the same that's thing. It. Maybe pictures are a view into the fucking spirit realm. Dude. Ooh. They say they're worth a thousand words. Um, I was thinking it, just in relation of this to the current Ouija, I, I kind of, I mean, like the way that I'm putting it together is since it's very like spiritual and, you know, like obviously as we're going to get into later, it's like frowned upon in some religions nowadays, but I think it's kind of one of those things similar to religion in that you can kind of trace certain religious stories back to like another ancient story. Whereas like here is like, okay, okay, we see them using a planchette or using a writing tool. And then that kind of just carries over into Western culture as, okay, now we have a board with the planchette. So it's just kind of like evolving with time and like, it's like a kind of like a game of telephone, you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, this is how they were doing it in China. This is how they're doing it in India. This is how they're doing it in ancient Greece. Egyptians were doing it this way. And then it's like, okay, now we have like a full on like board with the alphabet. And this is how we're going to try and contact the, the other side now. Okay. Makes so it's sense. just kind of, it seems like one of those things that like, okay, maybe it started as just like, someone using a writing tool or a planchette and hieroglyphs or you know ancient greek letters and then now it's just kind of like transformed into what we know it today as like the board with the alphabet on it with like a a board made by mattel distributed by mattel hasbro dude come on hasbro parker Parker brothers it was hasbro okay all right now now as far as origin stories go the Ouija board, as we know it today, uh, can be traced back to our 19th century obsession with what became known as spiritualism. Now, boiled down, this is basically a belief that the dead are able to communicate with the living. And there is a picture of a seance from the 1800s. Now, spiritualism had already been around for years in Europe, and by the 1840s, it made its way across the pond and exploded in popularity here in the U.S. Uh, First became popular in the Northeast, upstate New York, Ohio, places like that. Um, Now, as the movement began to spread, mediums would employ different means of communication with the dead. So things like table-turning parties, seances, automatic writing, spirit boards— They all became popular means of communication in the heyday of spiritualism. Now, in 1848, the Fox sisters of upstate New York became essentially celebrities of their time. Think of these were like the Kardashians of their time. There's a picture (laughs) of them there. Uh, They're like the goth Kardashians. Now, the two younger sisters claimed to receive messages from spirits who knocked on the walls as a way of answering questions. 
They convinced their older sister they were communicating with spirits, and she took the role of managing their careers, and they would travel around, communicate with the deceased, holding group seances all across the state. Now, obviously, stories about these celebrity sisters and other spiritualists spread through the press, and spiritualism reached millions of followers at its peak in the second half of the 19th century. Um, And little side note diversion here, eventually in 1888, Margarita, uh, one of the sisters, confessed that their wrappings had been a hoax and publicly demonstrated their method. Um, And, you know, a lot if not all of the early spiritualist mediums basically were just pure hucksters, fraudsters, grifters, uh, using simple tricks to fool audiences. Um, And fun fact I also found in my research, Houdini, the great Harry Houdini, actually would trick people... would trick people this way as as a spiritualist before he realized, hey, these people aren't seeking entertainment. They actually wanted to connect with loved ones, and he would actually go on to spend a good deal of his life debunking many spirit mediums. Um, in all his years of studying the phenomenon, he said he never met a genuine medium. Um, but you know, despite all this, the spiritualism movement continued to grow in popularity. So what you're telling me is Houdini is not all that we have thought he was. Well, I would say he's more he's more commendable. He saw magic as like okay, if you're coming to see a magician like Houdini or say David Blaine, you know you're going to see a magician. You know he's using smoke and mirrors, you just don't know how. What Houdini's gripe with the spiritualists were was that they're genuinely saying hey, we're connecting with your dead mother, and these grieving people are spending money to go to these seances and shit, and they're just being tricked. They're being tricked out of their fucking money. Houdini hated that. Yeah, like John Edward. You remember that guy? Like, Uh, to the other side? He had a show show in the early 2000s. It was like, <laughs> like one of like one of those stupid medium shows. Yeah, dude, and he was like super popular for a while, but then people started to realize that it was just all a bunch of horseshit. And yeah. like you know, there were like cards behind the stage and stuff and like he knew right, all right. he he would gather information from the contestants before they even spoke and he kind of oh, knew that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of like religious stuff like those televangelists do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, see, Houdini was trying to expose those people for what they were. Because those mediums weren't saying like, hey, we're tricking you. Try to figure out how. They were genuinely saying, hey, we're talking to the dead. And Houdini was like, this is fucking bullshit. I'm going to prove how you're doing this. Um, he said, now, hey, you, said, you guys are just cracking your toes on the fucking stage for these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now... Now, like we said, despite all this proving they were hucksters and fraudsters, spiritualism movement continued to grow in popularity. Um, now, one of the main reasons for this explosion in popularity can be attributed to the American Civil War. So during the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, devastation and destruction ripped through the country, nearly tearing it apart. Now, in the wake of this chaos, people were desperate to connect with loved ones who'd gone off to war and never returned home. And so spiritualism continued to gain followers in droves. And like we said, mediums basically raked it in as they allegedly allowed contact with so many of these lost relatives. 
Uh, even Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of President Honest Abraham Lincoln himself, would conduct seances in the White House after their 11-year-old son died of a fever in 1862. So by this time, it's safe to say that the use of talking boards and seances in general was fairly commonplace here in America. That reminds me, uh, it's not necessarily Ouija-related, but Mary Todd Lincoln practicing that kind of stuff in the White House. That reminds me of, uh, have you guys heard of the story um, of Churchill staying at the White House? Winston? Winston. Winston. Good old Winston. <laughs> yeah, what about him? I have he, was not. Dr- he was just you, drunk the whole time off scotch? No, 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 no. Um, so this is, well, probably, let's be honest. Um, he was but, just playing with a Ouija board? Yeah. <laughs> just playing playing with a Ouija board in one of the guest bedrooms in the White Found House. Found it in the Lincoln like, Wing. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, no, ironically enough, to get into my short story here, you, that's precisely what happened. He stayed in Lincoln's bedroom in the White House. I think this was like mid to late 40s. Um, I think it was. It may have been post-war. I can't exactly remember when it was. Okay. Don't fact check me on that. Um, but essentially, there's a story of him staying in uh, the Abraham Lincoln bedroom, and he was taking a bath. And he swears, by all accounts, he swears this happened, when, like it's 100% truth, but he said he uh, came out of the bathtub and he walked into the main room and there's a fireplace or something on. And he was only in his towel or something like, something like that. And <laughs> All right, I, like, I don't know if and, I like and, where this is going. Well, <laughs> it, it sounded kind of weird. It sounded kind of risque, but that's not really where okay. this goes. But I mean, it's kind of weird. But Abraham Lincoln apparently just appeared in front of him in like... Just physical form, just hanging out. It's Abe Lincoln with his, you know, top hat, just in the right. flesh. Of course, Winston's standing there like, what? Just completely not expecting it. Dick out. But exactly. But uh, <laughs> it, I think he said something along the lines of, um, "Oh, Mr. President, an uh, inconvenient time to see you," or something like that, and then. Abraham just kind of looked at him and then vanished. So, so nice um, dick, dude. Pretty much. It's kind of weird. So he saw Lincoln's ghost. Yes. Okay. So he claimed. I mean, there you go. Maybe connection with Mary Todd connecting with the other side. It got this fucking spirits all conjured up in the White House there. Maybe old Um, Winston's a bit of a clairvoyant, dude. Yeah. Um, Now. True. Now, getting us back on track here, so spiritualism's rise in America is interesting because at the time this is becoming popular, it was compatible with Christian dogma. So you could hold a seance on a Saturday night and have no gripes about going to church the next day. Um, It was seen then as an acceptable, even wholesome activity to contact spirits at seances, uh, whether it be through automatic writing or table-turning parties. Uh, And I was looking more into this table-turning parties. Essentially, participants gather around a table, place their hands on the small round table, and would watch as it began to shake and rattle while they all declared they weren't moving it. Um, Now, you're thinking of having one? Well, I mean, that's essentially a Ouija seance, right? It's just a different form. It's like kind of in Hereditary, you know, when she puts the glass upside down, it's moving around the table. 
We're about to do that later. Exactly. Okay. That's ex- that's the yeah. exact kind of glass that we got going for this uh, ghetto rigged Ouija board we have over here. Yeah. Now, now spiritualism the, as a movement, it also offered support and comfort in an era when the average lifespan was less than fifty. Women regularly died in childbirth, children died of disease, and men died in war. Now, one of the earliest press releases to mention the talking board appeared in 1886 in the New York Daily Tribune in an article titled, The New Planchette, a mysterious talking board and table over which northern Ohio is agitated. Now, basically, the article reported on a new phenomenon that was all the rage within spiritualist camps in Ohio, the talking board. It was essentially a Ouija board as we know it today, complete with the letters, numbers, a planchette-like device that pointed to them and described all the instruction of a typical Ouija seance. The article spreads all over the U.S., but it was Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland, who spotted an opportunity here. Um, So Charles Kennard was a businessman who had struck gold by creating a phosphate fertilizer from crushed bone. Uh, Now, from here, he formed a fertilizer company, which eventually went under. And he had several other businesses that never really took off, but always seemed to have one hand in real estate, which is how he managed to maintain a lot of his wealth. Now, he was also a Freemason. And it is speculated that this is how he went into business in 1890 with a group of four other investors, including Harry Wells Rusk, William H.A. Malpin, and Colonel Washington Bowie, all of whom were also Masons. Now, together, they started the Kennard Novelty Company, officially incorporated on October 30th, 1890. One day before Halloween, very spooky. Um, Now, they start this company to make and market these new talking boards. Now, a a gentleman by the name of Elijah Bond was a local attorney. He was also involved, not technically a founder. I believe he was an investor. And he also was the one to obtain the original patent. He was also a Freemason. Angel investor? Uh, possibly. (laughs) Now... Now, none of these men were spiritualists themselves, but they all were hustlers, businessmen of early American industry, and they had identified a niche market here. Now, this gets into the kind of modern boards that, that we see today. Um, now, contrary to popular belief, Ouija is not a combination of the French and German for yes, we and ja. Yes, yes. It's not a yes, yes board. That is a... Uh, that is a myth. Would be kind of weird if it was. <laughs> yeah. Now, allegedly, it was Elijah Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, um, who was said to be a strong medium, who supplied the now famous name for the board. Allegedly, sitting around a table, Kennard and Peters, and possibly Elijah was there as well. I'm not too sure on that. Some of these early stories are muddied. Um, they asked the board what they should call it when the name Ouija came through. They asked what that meant, and the board replied, good luck. Now, also, spooky as that may sound, Helen Peters was wearing a locket bearing a picture of a woman with the name Ouija above her head. Um, Or at least that's how the story goes. It's possible that this woman in the locket was a famous author and popular women's rights activist, Ouida, 
whom Helen had a great admiration for, and perhaps Ouija was just a misreading of that. And interesting fact I found out was that apparently in the house where this took place, where they named the board Ouija, um, it's now a 7-Eleven. And somebody like trade this guy that does a lot of like uh, Ouija history traced to where that 7-Eleven is in Baltimore. And they actually have a plaque commemorating that this is where the Ouija board was named. Um, you know, it's just right there on the wall in the 7-Eleven. And Helen Peters herself is like has a crazy story. Like she apparently named the board, was a big proponent of it. But eventually she grew to like despise the board because it like tore her family apart and she said the board lies and shit um you know a whole other trail we could go off with her life do you remember the uh gentleman's name that's in charge of the talking board society uh i have it later in here um let me actually find it the what boards robert merch robert yeah. Merck. for some uh, reason i wanted to say murdoch but i know that wasn't right no, it's so Rob's talking about the gentleman who does a lot of Ouija history, who found the Seven Eleven thing. His name is Robert Merck or Merch. It's uh, Merck, he yeah. runs the he Merck's people. What does he run? the The Ouija historical. It's the uh, Talking Board Society. He's actually this. He's the same one that found Elijah Bond's grave. But I was when I when I read the like origin story of how the name came about the one that you just were talking about and then in how he put that plaque up in the 7-eleven i was seeing if there was a way that we could like join the society as like podcast from outer space but there's like nothing about becoming a member on it that i could find so dead end yeah i mean i feel like it's just him doing his historical research and really you know like a lot of the stuff I found in this wouldn't be possible without his research because I think he was like one of the first people to kind of dive into Ouija from like a historian perspective and like document some of this early stuff. Yeah, guy's got a hell of a collection. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting stories with like the early years of Ouija. Um, and speaking of that, there's a story also that Kennard himself was experimenting with a table seance when he w he asked what he should do for his next business venture, and he was given the idea to mass-produce talking boards of his own invention. Um, now, again, I think that could be some type of myth or legend, um, you know. And it is interesting, like, the table seance stuff, because I found, like, the 1902 instructions that were given in the Ouija boards that were sold, and they have instructions for putting, like the board came with legs that you put on it. So it was essentially like a mini, smaller, portable version of a table seance. Okay. Um, yeah. And there is still no conclusive proof as to which of the original founders or investors actually invented the version we know today. Uh, some speculate it was either Elijah Bond, Kennard himself, or a gentleman by the name of Ernest Reich who made the board. And the Third Reich. Yeah, the Third Reich. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, you can see how with these early versions, it's basically an evolution of the table seance, you know, these early versions of the boards. Um, now, according to interviews with the descendants of the Ouija founders and the original Ouija patent file itself, the story of the board's patent request is even stranger. Or perhaps funnier, depending on how you look at it. 
So the story goes that basically, if they could prove the board worked, they would get their patent. Now, Elijah Bond brought Helen to the patent office in Washington when he filed the application. And there, the patent officer demanded a demonstration. And he said if the board could accurately spell out his name, which allegedly was unknown to Elijah or Helen, he'd allow the patent application to proceed. Now, they all sat down and began their communication with the spirit realm. And the planchette, sure enough, spelled out the patent officer's name. Very spooky. Now, whether or not this was actual mystical spirits or the fact that Elijah himself was a patent attorney and may have just known the guy's name is unclear. But on February 10th, 1891, a white-faced, visibly shaken patent officer awarded Elijah Bond a patent for his talking board. And there is a picture of the patent there. And I believe, I don't know, I couldn't find who the patent officer was, whose name it spelled out, but the witnesses that signed the patent are Frank D.E.S. Benzinger or H.R. Walton. So perhaps it's, it either spelled out Benzinger or Walton. Um, hmm. And, you know, they cited, on the patent, they cited this invention as a, quote, toy or game. <laughs> so they called it a... All a game. Yeah, they called it a toy or game. Now, all these stories play into the marketing of the Ouija board. Um, as we just saw with this history, it's kind of complex and... There's a lot of myths and stories, and, it, and that'll continue, as we'll see throughout the history of the board. But basically, the less the Kennard Company said about how the board worked, who invented it, how it was named, the more mysterious it became, and more people wanted to buy one. Ultimately, the Ouija board was a moneymaker. They didn't care why people thought it worked, as long as it led to sales. Now, of course, this shred of mystery can be seen as... Uh, conscious marketing effort as the founders of the Kennard Company were said to be very clever businessmen. And like a lot of write-ups that I found were saying, oh, these guys were shrewd businessmen. They were very clever, like uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, you know, think of like that type of guy. That's what these early Ouija guys were like. But I play your Ouija board. I patent your board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But Okay, so if this guy actually if this guy actually believed that the Ouija board spelled his name out. Allegedly, that's how the story goes. Ale hold on, allegedly, right, right. If he actually believed that and he's like, "Oh my gosh, this board is so spiritual." Why would he label it as a toy or game? That seems a little uh cr like a little unhinged to me. It's like, "Let's just well, push push this out to the masses when it could be something, you know, kind of wielding power that that he obviously didn't understand in the moment. Yeah, but his job as a patent officer isn't to, like, rule on moral issues of selling a game. He's just there to grant the patent. I guess, but I don't know. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of maybe that is what Elijah Bond wanted it to be patented as a toy or a game so that they could right. market so it as like, sell. oh, it's just yeah. a game, you know? Exactly. Well, yeah. also take take this into perspective. So the guy himself was a patent official. Right. So it's like Elijah. 
come on, like really, he didn't know the guy's name. <laughs> like, I'm just saying that that's a yeah. possibility because the guy was obviously it seemingly that he was a very cunning businessman. So like, what's to say that he just said, "Oh, I don't know your name." Doo-doo-doo. Exactly. I just wanted to say that's hearsay. He was a patent attorney. Yes, he was an attorney. I think specializing. Let's in get patents. specific. <laughs> but yes. no, you're right. You're absolutely right. But he was involved in patents. Like right. the guy knew other people involved in patents. Right. And so that's where I'm getting at where saying like a lot of people see these guys as super clever businessmen, but I'm thinking perhaps not. Considering they all had multiple businesses go under, they also all of these early guys held a ton of patents and who knows if they're all related to the board or not. Uh, like my theory there is that they were just patenting anything they could until they got a successful business venture, you know? Um, he walked back to Baltimore and said, check out the patent number, bitch. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Or it's like, oh, I don't know your name, but the board knows your name. And as we'll see, they also all like turn on, turn on each other, stabbing each other in the back at various points in the company's history. Like I said, the story gets complicated. Um, so let's continue. Now, by 1892, the Kinar Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to seven total. Two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, and one all the way across the pond in London. Now, in 1893, here's another shocker. Charles Kennard, whose name is in the goddamn company, and Elijah Bond, who got the patent, were pushed out of the company. Typical capitalism. Come on now. This ain't new. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Colonel Washington Bowie, one of the company's original four founders, would dismiss the other founders of the company, only keeping on Harry Wells Rusk. And then he renamed the company the Ouija Novelty Company, moved the headquarters, and installed his close friend William Fould at the helm. This is like fucking succession, dude. <laughs> lots of fucking, I'm saying lots of fucking, we could, we need to pitch the HBO show of like the Ouija board businessmen. We could. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. That would, pff, man, next, next Halloween. Let's do it. Let's, let's start pitching. Big hit. Maybe, uh, maybe the board told him to do it, dude. I don't know if Colonel Bowie was uh, out here fucking with Ouija boards. Like I said, none of these guys were spiritualists by trade. Sounds like a Um, damn character in Clue. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It looks like one, too, from the picture. (laughs) Was Colonel Bowie with the Ouija board? I mean, straight up looks like fucking um, the captain dude from Titanic. Um, Jeez. Was that guy's name Captain Smith? Captain something Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now... So Elijah and Kennard, they would go, they would be pushed out of the company. They'd go on to be involved with other talking board companies, the Volo board, which uh, is pictured here on the right, which they were both involved in, ultimately failed. And Elijah in 1907 would market the Nirvana board, also pictured here on the right bottom. Uh, This was manufactured and sold by the Swastika Novelty Company. Uh, And I found out that that struck gold there. Yeah, that company wasn't officially dissolved until 2014. Um, wow, now these how boards, did that happen? Uh, I think it just, like, they never, like, renewed it or something. And it Slipped through the cracks, expired. dude. Yeah, now these boards had the word Nirvana on them and a swastika slapped right on the middle. 
now I was looking for one of these. I got we got to find one of these. Um because that would be a great fucking relic to have. Now, again, this is not this is 1907, so this predates the Nazis, you know, use of the symbol, their appropriation of the Hindu symbol, but I mean, goddamn, you got to think if this guy kept this company alive until the 30s, he could have been booming in the German marketplace. Yeah, just right under Third Reich. <laughs> right, like he could have Third sold Reich these. Enterprises. He markets these to Nazis and he's making a huge killing. They got the fucking swastika on the board. Okay, so, you know, these rival boards launched and failed. Now, by this time, William Fold, pictured here on the right, um, he'd gotten in on the ground floor of the company as this was his one of his first jobs as he was a painter and varnisher, and he was one of the original stockholders in the Canard Novelty Company. He was now running the damn company. Later, he would be he would go on to be known as the father of the Ouija board, although he did deny credit for inventing the board. Um, now his story, which we'll get into here, is equally as crazy as these early stories associated with the board. So 1898, with the blessing of his good friend, Colonel Bowie, the major shareholder and one of only two remaining original founders, William Flood licensed the exclusive rights to make the Ouija board. So Bowie and Rusk, the two original guys that were left, they just basically sat back and collected royalties. Now, what followed were the boom years for, for Fold. An absolute disgust for some of those guys who'd been in on Ouija from the beginning who were pushed out. You saw back and forth over who really invented it. Continuous legal battles would play out. And as we just saw, rival boards were launched and failed. And by 1902, Rusk sold his remaining interest, which was one-sixth of the company, to Bowie for $100. So that's just a little over 3 k in today's money. Now, this gave Bowie full ownership and control of the Ouija board. In 1904, Fold, like all the others associated with the Ouija board, became a member of the Freemasons. Now, William Fold manufactured talking boards and other amusements, moving frequently into larger and larger factories, until in 1918, he built a three-story, 36,000-square-foot factory at Hartford Avenue, Lamont Avenue, and Federal Street in Baltimore. Now, the factory cost $125,000, and some stories, although who knows how true this are, this is, suggest that he built this factory after consulting the Ouija board, which told him to prepare for an uptick in business. Mm. Now, on April 24th, 1919, William became the sole owner of the Ouija board when Colonel Bowie assigned all of his remaining rights and interest in the U.S. Ouija trademark to him. Now, some stories I saw said that he sold all of this to Fold for $1 because he saw him as like his protege. Don't know how true that is. Now, William Fold, he witnessed the Ouija board go through numerous company names, the Kenar Novelty Company, the Ouija Novelty Company, Isaac Fold and Brother, William Fold, William Fold and Sons. And the Ouija board also tore him and his brother Isaac apart, pitting their families in a feud lasting almost a century starting in 1901 and ending with their grandchildren, Kathy and Stuart, in 1997. Jesus um, Christ. So another family that the board has seemed to 
cause a rift in. Now, on February 24th, 1927, while overseeing the replacement of a flagpole on the roof of his three-story Federal Street factory, the iron support he was leaning on gave way, and he tumbled backwards off the roof, grasping and catching one of the factory windows before falling to the ground. He suffered a concussion, five fractured ribs, a broken arm, a fractured leg, and numerous cuts and bruises. He was rushed to the hospital, but later died from one of his broken ribs piercing his heart. And laying on his deathbed, he uttered to his children, quote, Never sell the Ouija board. Now, how do we interpret that? Um, is he saying, like, don't be involved in the manufacture and sales like I was because he thought this killed him? Or is he saying never sell the rights because this is a huge moneymaker? What do you guys think? I'm thinking if we're going off of the story that the Ouija board, he was like consulting the board for like financial and business decisions. Right. That, and then he ends up dying during the construction of one of the factories. I'm thinking he's probably like, yo, we got to just stay the fuck away from this thing, boys. Okay. So you think the, the first one. He's telling his kids don't be involved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking the same thing. I think there's a little bit of superstition involved. I mean, it's kind of like The Exorcist, the movie The Exorcist. It's like the whole <laughs> yeah. conspiracy theory about, you know, everyone involved in the production of that movie. Oh, kind of got meeting like haunted a cr- and shit. Well, not just haunted. I mean, like died in terrible atrocities that like the one guy in the one scene where do you remember the one scene in the exorcist where they're in um the middle east and uh this guy like this guy gets impaled through the head like a car like runs into him and like this pole like impales him through the face that's got to be in a sequel because i just rewatched the exorcist number 1 and that's that scene is not in there okay it might have been a sequel but Definitely either way uh the the actor that played that you know, that role, he actually died the exact same way in real life. He got impaled in the head in the Impa- Middle East. Impaled through the face. Was it the exorcist or the, are you thinking of the omen? I thought it was the, I think there's a scene in the omen where the guy gets his impaled through the face. No, I'm, I think this is the exorcist. You're All thinking right, final we're... destination, dude. <laughs> yeah. You it, might be thinking final destination. Yeah, I, I mean, no, 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 not Final Destination. I'm pretty <laughs> I'm sure it's kidding, the Exorcist. Dude. Well, I mean, I don't know at this point, but um, either way, there's kind of that lore that surrounds it. I may be completely wrong with the movie, but I did hear something about. I'm pretty sure it was The Exorcist, but um, no, yeah, okay, maybe that is, maybe that is, uh, maybe you might be right there. Maybe we do a future episode and dive into some of that. Um, lore and maybe that's bad research on my part i should have looked that up but i didn't come across that in my research here Um, and i'm i may be completely off like but i do recall something akin to that but okay you know i think ultimately i i'm i totally can think that he would be like oh i'm cursed this whole ouija thing is cursed i want to prevent my family from dealing with the same fate see the first time i read the first time I read that, I took it as don't ever sell the rights, like keep this in our family because this is generational wealth, you know? I don't know. I guess it's context, right? 
like how did he say it in the moment what emotion was kind of conveyed right yeah um now you know more mystery there like is the case with a lot of this history um but any whom the business was taken over by his children headed by william a fold Eventually, due to the age and health and problems William was having, the entire business and the Ouija board were sold to Parker Brothers on February 24th, 1966, on the 39th anniversary of William Fold's death. Um, so there is another synchronicity there. So pour one out for this guy and, you know, maybe shout him out next time you do a uh, Ouija seance. Uh, because, I mean, that's a fucking hell of a tale, you know? Yeah, that... That sucks, man. Do we know uh, how much his family sold to Parker Brothers for? A dollar, perhaps? <laughs> I, do, I don't think it was a dollar, but I'm sure they made a fucking millions off of that deal. I don't know how, what the exact number is. I don't know if, if that's like public information or not. I was just wondering if that's like, if we are taking it the way you thought it was, like, hey, never sell this. Maybe that put like some fucking family curse in place. Maybe, man. Um, I mean, like we said, it divided um it divided his like grandchildren. They eventually ended the thing in ninety seven, so that's for a fucking century. Yeah, that's fucking years after they sold the rights. So who the fuck knows what's going on there? Um now let's hop into Ouija and, you know, like pop culture, that sort of thing, because this is also an interesting tale. And Billy, this plays into some of the exorcism lore you were just talking about. Oh, Um, hell yeah. Now, as we lightly touched on earlier, Ouija boards had tapped into a weird niche within American culture, uh, marketed as both mystical oracle and family entertainment. They were seen as fun with an element of otherworldly mystery added to the excitement. And in the early boom years of the Ouija board, it wasn't only spiritualists who bought them. In fact, I was finding the contrary. It actually seemed to be that those who disliked the Ouija board most were spirit mediums because now their job as a spiritualist middleman is basically cut out. You can do it yourself. DIY um, mediumship, you know, buy yourself a board at a fucking Toys R Us and uh, hold a seance. Don't need a fucking spirit. Don't need to pay a spiritualist, you know. Well, interestingly enough, when we were looking earlier, me and Billy could not find the board in Walmart or Target and had to resort to buying a Ouija tablecloth at Spirit Halloween. (laughs) Okay, okay. So the Ouija board appealed to people across a wide range of ages, professions, and education, mostly because the Ouija board offered a fun, engaging way for people to believe in something. And like we know all too well from discussing aliens, spiritualism is no different. This is paraphrased from Ouija expert Robert Merck, who we talked about earlier. People have an innate desire to want to believe. Our need to believe that something else is out there is powerful, and the Ouija plays perfectly on that belief. Now, throughout the 1910s and into the 20s, we saw the devastation of World War I. Soon, thousands of Americans were using Ouija boards to check up on loved ones fighting in Europe, just like we saw with the Civil War. And in 1916, Pearl Curran became a prominent figure during the World War I-era spiritualism revival when her friend Emily Grand Hutchings recommended that they start fucking around with a Ouija board. 
Um, now, Pearl and Emily began using this as a tool for divining the future, finding lost objects, seeking daily advice, and contacting spirits. Now, this brings us to the case of Patience Worth. Had you guys ever heard of this one? No. I have. Okay, so Patience Worth was allegedly a spirit contacted by Pearl, and they developed regular communication that produced several novels, poetry, and prose, which Pearl claimed were being delivered to her through channeling the spirit of Patience Worth via the Ouija board. In five years' time, she dictated four million words spanning poems, allegories, plays, short stories, and full-length novels. Regular Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Yeah, now physiologists and er, psychologists and skeptics who have studied and debated Pearl's writings are in agreement that Patience was a fictitious creation of Pearl Curran. Uh, Perhaps was she tapping into her own subconscious in order to, like, get some sort of creative inspiration for all these novels and plays? Or do we think this is that she was straight up contacting a dead woman, you know? Um, Now, Curran is largely responsible for the Ouija board's modern reputation as a real tool of prophecy and full-on spirit communication. I mean, has it fully been disproven that that was an actual person that she was contacting? I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever, like, found record of a patient's worth existing, but, like, she did write all this shit, and it got published, and a lot of people said this was, like, good literature and stuff, and she had never I mean, done I, that before. I never read the books, but I I saw, like, a little documentary series about her writing the novels and claiming that they were given to her by the spirit. Right. I mean, I would think it's more of, like, the Ouija was just an excuse for her to tap into her own creative side. And this just came from her subconscious. I don't think, I mean, personally, I don't believe in that type of shit. So maybe that's, maybe I'm biased, but it is, it it is. You don't, you don't believe. I I do not. Um, But it is interesting that like she wrote all this shit and people were like, Hey, this is good stuff. Yeah. It could be her tapping into her subconscious or, Kind of, um, she may have had some type of like bipolar type of thing or split personality disorder or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, who knows, right? It's like you have, you know, people with split personality disorder. It's like they have completely different versions of themselves where this Pearl character could have been like a manifestation of... Patience. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, Patience was a manifestation well, uh, Pearl was the actual human. Patience was the spirit. Right, right, right. So patience was a manifestation of Pearl's like other self in a way. Right. But she may maybe she really believed that it was a real entity that she was communicating with. She didn't um, have the patience to write a novel herself, so she had to <laughs> Yeah, the right. Other side. She has to rely on a ghost, you know. <laughs> that like, plays more on the subconscious, dude. Patience was something she lacked, so that's what the manifestation became. That's what came now, to Now, here, see if this changes your mind. So the following year, 1917, novelist Emily Grand Hutchings claimed that her book, Jap Heron, was dictated by none other than Mark Twain himself, from whom she started receiving messages two years prior to the release of the book via the Ouija board. And yes, this is the same Emily Grant Hutchings who introduced Pearl Curran to the Ouija board as they were friends. 
So do we really think that both of these women contacted spirits that wrote brilliant novels? Like, or is that just a pure coincidence that they were friends or did they, do you think maybe this was a full on grift to sell their novels? I mean, I, I think if I had to choose one or the other, I'm going to believe the patient's worth versus this lady's contacting Mark Twain spirit and writing stories. <laughs> but th- that is actually yeah. like kind of a genius way to market a book. Like, this was written by Mark Twain from the dead. That's like, that'd be like if you guys do your Ouija seance tonight and Billy wrote a full album saying he was contacting David Bowie from the spirit realm. So this is a David Bowie album. And then yeah, that, dude, like, we, uh, <laughs> yeah. we met up with Jim Morrison last night and exactly. <laughs> laid down right. some like, tracks, you know, got, like, got MJ in the studio, you know, just like, what's up y'all. Like she's doing? just using <laughs> his name to like sell the books, you know? Well, Jap Heron is not the same, but I mean, weird shoot, name if, too. If we should try to contact Edgar Allan Poe. Actually, that'd be dope. Yeah, maybe write like, some poems, dude. Exactly, Tis, man. it I, is that maybe inspir- we take I would it, that inspiration uh, down. Take the board down to his old residence. You know, down it's the like street. right down the street. Now that I think Ooh, about it, yeah, you guys right in Shaco, man. Go. Try to get the fucking vampire out of Hollywood Cemetery. <laughs> we talked Dude, about that it earlier, closes, bro. It closes at a certain point. We'd have to like sneak through a gate, which to all you all you listeners out there, do not do those things. Don't sneak right. through gates. All right, let's get back on track here. So those are two like snippets from the early days of Ouija lore, I guess, and you know how the board is kind of being used and viewed by the public now. By 1920 alone, William Fould claimed that he had made $3 million in profit off the Ouija board. That's around $50 million today. At one point following World War I, it is estimated that nearly every household in the USA had one either stashed in a cupboard or displayed on a coffee table. It was so normal that in May of 1920... Norman Rockwell, whose work has now become synonymous with American culture and nostalgia, depicted a man and woman Ouija board in their laps communicating with the spirit realm on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Now, this is a famous painting or picture, right? We've all seen this, you know? Hell yeah. Um, so, you know, this is it's breaking into the fucking mainstream. This is on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Now, during the Great Depression... The Fooled Company opened new factories to meet demand for Ouija boards. And also around this time, interesting side note here, 1930s, Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and writer of the famous 12-step recovery program, claims that he wrote the 12 steps under the guidance of a 15th century monk named Boniface. Uh, Boniface, Boniface, I don't know how you would say that, Boniface. <laughs> Um, Boniface. <laughs> now it is said that uh, Boniface. So he, yeah. So he contacted Boniface. <laughs> sounds like ancient Roman or something. Boniface. He contacted this 15th century monk by use of the Ouija board, and it is said that Wilson himself had a spook room in his house, which he frequently <laughs> visited and apparently contacted spirits with a Ouija board. Sounds racist, but. We'll go with it. <laughs> well, go on. This is not. This is a. This is a common room in someone's house, like a parlor. You also got a spook room, dude. You got one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the. That's the podcast studio, dude. It's a spook room. 
Makes sense. Um, also, fun fact, Wilson was later known for his involvement in LSD experiments with Aldous Huxley um, as an effort to cure alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, quit doing alcohol and start doing acid. <laughs> well, I think it's, dude, this isn't far off from what they're doing today with like the PTSD and psilocybin, you know, it's a way of opening different pathways in your mind. Um, I don't think that's that crazy of a thing. Ego death, bro. The shadow. Right. Now, of course, World War II saw another influx in Ouija sales. Over a five-month period in 1944, a single New York department store sold more than 50,000 of these fuckers. And in 1967, the year after the Parker Brothers bought the rights from the Fold Company, two million boards were sold, outselling the most popular game at that time, which was Monopoly. Another famous parlor game. Yes. Yes. Now, that same year also saw more American troops entering Vietnam as the war continued to escalate, eventually leading to a full-on draft two years later. So, you know, as we can see, it seems that in times of great peril, Ouija sales flourish. You know, if we're at war, buy some fucking stock in the Ouija board, guys. Yeah. And go out and grab that Parker Brothers stock. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think... think and this is kind of a point I'm going to touch on later on in the episode, but um, I mean, it, times of great peril, Ouija sales flourish. When you think about that, people are experiencing great loss and tragedy constantly with wars and whatnot, and it's like they're trying to to reach for you know to reach for something higher to be able to connect with that lost loved one. So as as we're kind of talking about this topic and kind of delving into it a little bit more, it's interesting to kind of connect those dots. I had no idea that there was this much history involved in this topic, but it's also like when you look at the time periods, it's, it's either coincidental or maybe they figured out some crazy type of, you know, magic, so to speak. (laughs) Right. And it does align with like, um, it's like we were saying earlier, uh, the the paraphrasing of that, the one gentleman, um, Robert Merck, uh, like people have an innate desire to want to believe in a higher power. Ouija board kind of lets them exercise that, kind of lets them tap into that belief. Um, so, right, you know, of course the boards are gonna are gonna sell well when people are trying to trying to find their way and deal with grief and loss and pain and that, and those sorts of things. Now, now originally with the board's commercial introduction, the Ouija board was seen, as we said, an innocent parlor game unrelated to the occult. As we just saw that it was normal, harmless American pastime and everybody seemed to be on, on board with it. You know, people were doing it in the white house. You got fucking Norman Rockwell painting this shit. Now, that is until 1973. And that year is the year that The Exorcist was released in theaters, going on to become one of the greatest horror films of all time and the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture by the Academy, released on one hell of a release date, December 26, 1973, the day after the birthday of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Cristo. That's awesome. Now, in the film, the young Reagan makes what at first appears to be harmless contact with an entity named Captain Howdy. And she was using none other 
than a Ouija board. Now, of course, we all know, spoiler alert, she later becomes possessed by the demon Pazuzu, uh, throwing up pea soup, spinning her head around, and spitting in the face of priests. Classic demon shit, you know. Um, Now, what's important here is the film's implication that an innocent 12-year-old girl was possessed by a demon after playing with a common household item, the Ouija board. This drastically changed how people saw the board. And, you know, we've, I think we've gotten into this before on some of our past horror episodes, um, but often, like, this kind of element is what makes great horror movies that stick with an audience. Uh, taking common things that we use or experience every day and injecting an unspeakable horror right into that experience. You know, take Psycho, for example. Nobody's afraid to take a shower until that classic Hitchcock scene. The grudge later put its own spin on the shower element. Wasn't that the grudge where she was washing her hair and it was like she yeah, felt it's like knuckles. pulling out? Yeah, yeah the yeah. fingers coming through the hair and on her head. Yep. Yep. Uh, even the birds, another Hitchcock example. Birds are everywhere, but now people had to fear that birds, swarms of evil birds, might actually attack them. Jaws is another example. Everybody loves the beach. Until there's the threat of a man-eating shark in the water. People were afraid of swimming pools when that when they saw that movie. My neighbor included when we were kids. Uh, we watched Jaws and she was afraid to go in the fucking swimming pool. So, you know, before The Exorcist, film and TV depictions of the Ouija board were usually jokey, campy, silly. I Love Lucy featured a 1951 episode where Lucy and Ethel host a seance. Uh, the Ouija board was briefly featured in the episode. Season one, episode seven, uh, which is free on Pluto for your okay. viewing pleasure nice, if nice you want to check that out. Yeah. Uh, I actually watched it the other day with Lexi. Pretty, I, I had never seen I Love Lucy before, and I think she's kind of annoying. Oh, hot take. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, she's just got a lot of energy. She's very, right, right. and I'm not saying energy's annoying, but she's just very bubbly and. Well, her voice you know. itself is kind of like nails on a chalkboard. Jesus, I've, I mean, I've honestly, you're not wrong. I don't think I've watched more than like two or three episodes of like reruns of it with mom. Well, hey, check out the seance. That's the name of the episode. Like I said, free on Pluto. Um, but so yeah, you know, usually it was. Um, the Ouija board was just depicted as like a silly thing, a game, a parlor game, like we said. Now, after 1973, this is no fucking joke anymore. This is serious stuff we're dealing with. The Exorcist took what was once an innocent game that by this point practically everyone had one laying around somewhere, even if it was stashed in an attic or a basement, and boom, not so innocent anymore. You play around with the supernatural, and look what could happen. The Ouija board, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> right, right. Sounds like Spider-Man. Maybe he had one, you know, May had one hanging around in the attic. Now, Billy, I'm not sure about, like, what you were talking about. I'll take your word for it with, like, the curse of the film and all the people dying and shit, you know? That could be connected to the Ouija board itself. Um, but adding even more sinister overtones to the once beloved parlor game, was the fact that William Peter Blatty, uh, who wrote the 1971 novel, The Exorcist, on which the film is based, he got the inspiration from an actual case of an allegedly possessed boy that took 
place in Maryland in 1949, known as the Exorcism of Roland Doe. Um, this was based on a diary of a Jesuit priest who William um, had met when he was at Georgetown University, also why the story is based there. And the boy had allegedly been introduced to a Ouija board by an aunt who was interested in spiritualism. And the first signs of the boy's possession began shortly after the aunt died. Now, taking these details, William went on to pen his novel by basically filling in the gaps. And the result sparked a national obsession with exorcism and demons kicking off right after the release of the film two years later. So, you know, a clear line can be drawn between the Ouija board and the exorcist. And that changed the very fabric of pop culture and how people saw the board. That is pretty insane to think that, you know, uh, World War One. I, I mean, even from the mid to late 1800s, when you, when you take the Civil War era, and that kind of was the, the, you know, kind of the inception of the Ouija board, and then it, it continued in popularity through... World War One and World War Two, when we were seeing that chaos, and then, you know, in the seventies, when these movies that just like terrified society popped up, one The Exorcist, which involved a Ouija board that caused all this crazy stuff. I mean, I remember, I've heard stories of people seeing The Exorcist in movie theaters and like running out screaming or like fainting right, right. or like just having absolute like mental breakdowns because they were so terrified of, of what they're seeing on the screen. And that's going to, that's going to affect the cultural perception of, of the game and, and turn it in, turn it from a like kind of re, like redemptive force to like a, you know, malevolent force. Right, which is kind of crazy because the board's been around for so long, but nobody's saying, hey, these things are inherently evil, but the exorcist comes along and basically changed all of that. It did, because it, it people were thinking, oh, well, if I, if I play with a Ouija board, what if that could happen to me? It very well could. <laughs> well, It could Rob, tonight. Let's, let's keep diving into this history here. So, so Hasbro... Like we said, they eventually acquire Parker Brothers in 1991, inheriting the Ouija trademark, and is still selling hundreds of thousands of boards. But now, the reasons why people are buying them have completely changed. Ouija boards are now spooky rather than spiritual, with a distinct element of danger. Now, of course, throughout the 80s and 90s, we had the whole satanic panic, which of course added its own flair to this idea that the Ouija board was inherently evil and some tool of the devil. And we see, like we were just saying, we see this pattern continue in pop culture and the horror genre as a whole, basically revamping what The Exorcist did. Another massive hit featuring the Ouija board was 2007's Paranormal Activity. Now, I think we all remember when this came out. Yeah, it was, it was like the one of the first successful found footage horror movies kind of thing. Not found footage, but... I well, yeah, like I would say Blair Witch Project was the first, I guess, like found footage one, but... Yeah, right. Or I guess popular found footage one. And Paranormal Activity took a page right out of Blair Witch Project. They opened up with the idea that what you are seeing is recovered real footage. And in the film, 
the demonic entity becomes more powerful when the husband uses the Ouija board. Right, and it's found footage, and it it's kind of scary because it's 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 like a, a visceral experience almost. It's like, oh my gosh, like that's just on like a a ring camera or whatever camera <laughs> yeah. existed back in you know 2010 or whatever 2009 when it came out like 2007 just, 2007 the old handy cam yeah yeah now despite the multiple warnings from different religious organizations which we'll get into later the sales of modern Ouija boards uh surged once again in December 2014 due to the screening of a low budget film with the simple title Ouija um and, you know, I was honestly surprised, like, Rob and I watched this film um, when I was back East recently, and I'm honestly surprised that it took that long for a straight-up Ouija film to come out. I'm honestly surprised they didn't have a bigger budget, because that movie could have been so much cooler. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those, like, I mean, like we said, low-budget kind of franchises that became more popular. Wasn't the second one, like, Ouija Origin of Evil? Yeah. It, that one was, like, a bigger budget, I think. Uh, I didn't watch I've, that one. I've seen that one, but I don't really, like, remember a whole lot, but... That's not a good sign for a horror movie, because I remember I saw Ouija Origin of Evil as well, and I don't remember much from it, probably because <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, with all this kind of stuff, now we have, we see two common patterns that seem to add to Ouija board sales. That is, one, the state of the nation. As we said, desperate times call for Ouija boards. And two, (laughs) the mention of Ouija boards in films. Now, let's get into religion's take on the whole thing. So, you know, since... Since early on in the Ouija board's history, it's been criticized by several stupid Christian denominations. Um, now, now stupid. Eventually, <laughs> yeah, now That's event- harsh. eventually, many uh, Western religions, including Catholicism, would go on to warn against the use of Ouija boards altogether, considering their use satanic practice, holding the belief that they can, in fact, lead to demonic possession. The Catholic Church. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, Triple C for short, explicitly forbids any practice of divination, which would include the use of Ouija boards. Now, I was perusing this website called Catholic Answers, which is essentially a Roman Catholic apologist organization based uh, actually right north of me in El Cajon, California. And I asked the question, are Ouija boards harmless? Now, the website gave the short answer, quote, No, the Ouija board is far from harmless, as it is a form of divination seeking information from supernatural sources. The fact of the matter is, the Ouija board really does work, and the only spirits that will be contacted through it are evil ones. Now, most of these Christian views cite Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, which says, quote, 
Uh, now, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Now, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, because these same detestable practices, the Lord, your God, will drive out those nations before you. Now, Catholic answers also claims to have the testimony of the church's exorcists who go so far as to say that 90% of the of their very worst cases involving demonic activity have been linked to the use of the Ouija board. Now, many of these types of religious objections to using the Ouija board have given rise to cautionary folklore-type tales, uh, the most famous of these probably being the Zuzu, um, the Ouija demon, which is like an internet cautionary tale that first became popular in 2009. Check out the tale. Maybe we'll get into it on our spooky stories episode. Basically involves like this guy's keeps being contacted by this ancient demon named Zuzu who communicates with everyone far and wide with Ouija boards. Um, and you know, that's seems to be the basic premise of these tales. They're basically warning that the board opens a door to evil spirits, turning the game into a supernatural dare, especially for young people. Now, Ed and Lorraine Warren, little preview for our Halloween special, also echo this fact. Uh, I was reading in the book Ouija, the Most Dangerous Game by Stoker Hunt, who I I use that book for a lot of this research, and that was written in 1985, so post-Exorcist, once the board is starting to be seen as evil. Um, now, they're interviewed in that book, and they're basically saying that like the Ouija board can never be used for good. It should never be kept in a Christian home. If you have one, you have to bury it a certain way, cut it up into a certain amount of pieces and sprinkle holy water on it. You can never burn it. It basically just fits in the viewpoint of this Catholic narrative that, hey, anybody who uses this thing is detestable to the Lord. You know, that kind of shit. Now, I'm doing some digging on this, and it looks like this was not always the case, or at least not a widely held belief when the board was first introduced here in the U.S. In the early years of the spiritualist movement, many American Catholics had actually been attracted to spiritualism. Like we said earlier, it seemed to be a lighthearted way to connect with loved ones or spirits long gone. Now, of course, this viewpoint eventually changed, and once the church authorities caught wind of this, they moved quickly to counter, saying, hey, you can't talk to the dead. Only we can talk to the dead. Now, there's this gentleman by the name of J. Godfrey Ropert. Um, he was a psychic investigator who hoped to prove spiritualism was legit by using the scientific method. Now, that is before he converted to Catholicism and fully renounced spiritualism altogether. He wrote a few books, one in 1901 titled The Dangers of Spiritualism. And allegedly, he was even commissioned by Pope Pius X to warn Catholics about the Ouija board. Now, this led to his 1919 book titled The New Black Magic and the Truth About the Ouija Board. So, you know, really there wasn't a big movement within the church going against the Ouija board until almost 30 years after they'd been on the market. 
Uh, but obviously these early warnings didn't get nearly as much attention as when the exorcist came out and the board was seen as a straight up tool of the devil. Now, also, this seems to be mostly fundamentalist Christian groups that are fully opposed, like the Catholics or groups that take the Bible literally. Some of the non-fundamentalist groups uh, at least tolerate its use instead of outright banishing it as a tool of the devil. Um, Even the Jews aren't fully opposed to its use, uh, but they do view it as a negative and basically say that only somebody skilled in the Kabbalah, which is immensely complicated Jewish mysticism, should use it. And even then, it should only be for the greater good of their community. Now, even Wiccas are opposed to using the Ouija board, basically saying that if you're inexperienced, you're going to have a negative experience. And there are much easier ways to contact good spirits. In fact, as far as I could tell, the only, I guess, Western religion that actually encourages using the Ouija board would be spiritualism. And spiritualism, I guess, isn't even technically a religion because they have no collected canon of theological dogma. But I guess those camps are really the only ones who are saying, hey, Every this is for everybody. Use it at your own will. Contact like lost spirits and shit like that. Um, but I mean, what are we thinking here about like the different religious takes on this thing? And let me know if you guys are tracking here, because this might be a long-winded thought that I was coming up with while I was typing out this outline. But going back to like the Catholics' views, and you look at the Exorcist. And the way that people kind of like use the board or like thought of the board after that, I think it is interesting that the notion um, that these movies like The Exorcist, which are so beloved by horror fans, they basically are just bolstering up the church's belief system. I mean, honestly, you could say that big horror could be funded by the church secretly. Well, dude, conspiracy theory? Yeah, dude. I mean, look at the more recent Conjuring movies. Those are essentially like Christianity's version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All the movies are connected in a cinematic universe. You got this unspeakable evil that can only be vanquished with the help of the church, often in the form of an exorcism, and the good guys always win. And even kind of jacking the plot of the exorcist, those movies, like, look at all the exorcist movies that came out. Like I recently watched that one, the Pope's exorcist. I never saw that one. That was garbage. I started watching it and I was like, dude, this sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's so bad, but they, they follow all the same kind of basic plot. Young, innocent persons possess. Nobody figures out what's going wrong. They turn to the church. It goes up the chain of command until they're like, well, there is one person. He's unorthodox. Nobody's heard from him in years. Father O'Houlihan. He hasn't conducted an exorcism in 20 years. And then he shows up, he dies during the exorcism, and the younger priest carries on the mantle. You know, it's the same kind of thing, but it, it's all like... Um, I'll come back just this one time for one more exorcism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I'll give it one more try. And it's like, all those movies, I guess, are, are kind of fitting into this view of the Ouija as evil which all fits into this box of like Catholic dogma. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And personally for me, I, I was a Christian, um, you know, maybe seven, seven years or so. I, I went through a deconstructive phase 
Um, <laughs> and not not that I'm closed off to it, but I'm open to it. But I I've been involved. Many of my friends are still Christian. I, you know, I have the utmost respect for the religion and whatnot. But uh, I know that they are very against the use of you know tampering with these types of energies um, because they believe that it. it you know, we're it's not really our place to do that, and we're opening the door, potentially inviting, you know, um, malevolent forces to to enter our lives, demonic forces. And I think if you you know if you really think about like the the concept of a demon, that's not just a Christian thing necessarily. Like the, the it, Islam has demons and jinn kind of thing, you know, but. Um, I think that it's kind of inherent within their religion to kind of avoid things that are potentially unclean because you will always want to keep your, you know, spirit clean and, and, and whole and whatnot. Um, so me being a rebel and me, obviously, you know, even when I was a Christian, I was always really interested in the paranormal. Um, so for me, it was always kind of, uh, I, I don't really get freaked out of this stuff to be quite honest with you. But could we be tampering with forces that we don't understand? Sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of within their their fate, you know, their their fate to kind of not want to coax those ty- those types of energies. Okay. Okay. Now, do you think though that it's weird? Because at least for me, I'm thinking it's weird that. They didn't oppose this thing from the jump, you know? And maybe that's just like we said, they never caught wind of what this shit was because they don't want to fuck with that in any capacity. But it is like, why why wouldn't they just renounce this as a tool of the devil right from the jump? It seems like at first they were kind of like, okay, but then as it's being portrayed more and more throughout pop pop culture and film as like this evil demonic thing that's when those ideas really start to like have a snowball effect of the ed and lorraine warren view of this is only used for evil and only demons are going to come through this no very true um i mean if you think about like exorcisms there are plenty of like legit exorcists exorcists that are you know acknowledged throughout the world to, you know, that have been very forthright about their experiences dealing with this kind of supernatural activity. I guess the biggest thing is, well, is this a game? Is this simply a game or is it something more profound? Some like a game, right? A poly game. Is it a poly game or is it like, I don't know, Rob, you got any thoughts, man? Billy, the kid, former Christian, We've heard his thoughts. My take on it is kind of, so when Ouija first hits the market back in late 1800s, early 1900s is when it really starts catching on. And this is the time where, as we discussed, you know, basically from the end of the Civil War era through, we'll say, end of World War II, that's like the time where you know, you got the Civil War, the Great Depression, World War One, World War Two. All these people are trying to reconnect with the, the the like massive amount of loss that our uh, nation has faced. You could say. Uh-huh. So, 
I think the church is seeing like, oh, you know, maybe this is like a tool that these people are using to cope with their grief, as we previously discussed. And then once it's like, oh, it's this evil thing and like only demons can come through it. And then you have kids getting it and fucking around with it and not really taking it seriously and not using it how it's supposed to be used to contact like spirits of someone you'd actually want to talk to and rather more like malevolent evil spirits and then you do see more like possessions starting to happen because people are using it with like malintent or like they don't know what they're doing and they're kind of just like fucking around with it and like actually opening the door to those evil spirits i think that's when you start to see like okay like we just got to put a stop to this and just get that message across like oh don't fuck with this thing it's only evil like you're only gonna have bad experiences with it then people aren't really fucking around with it as much i think that was kind of like from their perspective if we can paint it as this evil thing and not have as many of these crazy occurrences happen so i'm thinking okay maybe this shit does work because why would they go to all this trouble to like paint it as such an evil thing all of a sudden if you know if that kind of crazy shit wasn't actually happening here and there you know okay i think i got kind of lost in there but uh i think i'm tracking (laughs) well no i'm saying so initially people are using it like oh you know my brother went off to war and never came back i really want to reconnect with him and that's they're kind of using it for good intent and then once the exorcist hits and this chick is getting possessed by some dick devil, you know, it's like, oh, all these kids are like, oh, we got to use it to like fuck with demons. And they're using it with the intent of connecting with evil spirits instead of using it for good. So the church is just like, yo, we got to cut this off right now. Oh, okay. So they just blanket statements say these things are bad. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, like, there's nothing in the Bible that says, oh, you can't use a Ouija board because well, yeah, it didn't even, fucking exist. So. Deuteronomy, dude. We saw. You can't do any type of divination. That would be the Ouija board. Yeah, but I also think that that kind of plays into the church just wanting to be the ones in control of that stuff. And it's like they wanted to. They wanted to be the ones to tell us what to do and what not to do and what's the word of God through their interpretation and not have, you know, your regular fucking Joe Schmo being able to contact some spirits and like find out, you know, what happens after you die because they want to, they want it to be up to them to decide and for you to know, oh, this is what God says from our point of view, you know? All right. Yeah. Okay. Now let's press on here now. On the flip side of the religious views, but kind of in the same box here, are the occultists. Now, they seem to be divided on the issue. Uh, Some claim the Ouija board can be a tool for positive transformation. Others repeat the warnings of many Christian organizations and caution inexperienced users against its use. Now, even our old pal, the greatest ceremonial magician of the 20th century, Aleister Crowley, had a great admiration for the use of the Ouija board, at least in private. Um, now, we covered his life on our Halloween special last year. That's uh, episode 109, if you want to check that out for further listening. Now, 
correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall us really going into great deal about him using the Ouija board. Um, I mean, it seems to have played like a minor role in his magical workings. Um, but from what I could tell, it looks like in public, he basically mocked them saying they were stupid. Uh, he used the term fa, which I guess means like bullshit or like fake. Um, but in his private letters, he was actually a big fan of using the Ouija board as an occult tool. I can't remember what the uh, exact name he was going to call it, but I think one of those dudes that he was fucking was like, he used it a lot with that guy, and they had like this idea of like remarketing it as like Aleister Crowley's Ouija board, but they had like some weird, stupid name for it, and then he ended up dying before they actually like went through with the whole process, but he wanted to like have his own version of it. Kind of like how he did the tarot cards. Well, yeah, well I got that right here. Getting a little bit ahead, but um, I guess the letters mentioned um, where he talks about it are between Crowley and one of his followers, Charles Stansfield Jones, uh, better known by his magical name, Freighter Akkad. Uh, now I believe yes, he, Crowley and this guy were boofing each other. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. And now, they both strongly believe that the board utilizes the same principles that were practiced by the famed magician John Dee, who served as the advisor to Queen Elizabeth the First in 1558. Um, and he used a crystal ball as a means of scrying or seeing into the invisible realms, uh, among other forms of Anakian magic. Now, over the years, both Jones and Crowley became so fascinated by the Ouija board. Um, Rob, like you were talking about, they wanted to market their own design in 1919, but this never came to life. And Crowley's design, along with his new name for the board, seems to be lost for history. I couldn't find what he wanted to call it. Uh, do you remember that at all? The old boof board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty the much. Crowley boof board. Um, it's a picture of him and the dude fucking on it. <laughs> now, it can only be used while Aleister Crowley is fucking you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I would actually think be, this is probably because like those early pioneers like William Fould and Bowie, they probably had like a stranglehold on the Ouija marketplace by 1919, you know, and they had it trademarked and everything. So that's probably why Crowley eventually had to try to devise his own name. But um, maybe he tried to uh, create a partnership with the Swastika Novelty Company, but it just never came to fruition. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm surprised he didn't jump, jump on the Nirvana board. Um, now, some believe that through his intense interactions with the board, much like his magical rituals in general, Crowley was able to open up gateways to other dimensions, unleashing dark forces that still linger to this day. Uh, you know, like we talked about with some of his ceremonies, opening up a portal, which Lamb came through, um, this interdimensional entity, which could be seen as a modern day alien, that type of shit. Maybe Crowley's opening up these gateways and they were never closed. Now. Let's get into some stories, some real life stories, because throughout history, there's hundreds, probably thousands of tales of Ouija boards leading to insanity and murder. And it's like we were talking about. Most of these don't pop up coincidentally until after the boards took on a more sinister view in the eyes of the general public. So that is post-exorcist 1973. 
Um, you know, I found a bunch of cases where, oh, this kid murdered somebody and he said I was playing with a Ouija board and it told me to do that. You can look on the internet, find a bunch of these stories, court cases where they bring up Ouija boards, possessing people, all shit like that. And like I said, these are all post-exorcist 1973. So I spent my time looking for earlier tales of sinister Ouija boards and I did find some interesting ones. So let me know what you guys think. So November 21st, 1891, year of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so this is practically right at the jump. Same year they got the damn patent for the Ouija board. The San Francisco Morning Call told the tragic story of 28-year-old Miss Eugenie Carpenter of Bridgeport, Connecticut, who had grown depressed over a breakup with her boyfriend. Now, Eugenie and a friend proceeded to play with a newly bought Ouija board, and when asked the board if her lover would ever return, it spelled out, quote, He has ceased to love you. He will never return. Now, a few days later, a neighbor awoke to find Eugenie wandering the street in her nightgown, muttering, Ouija said so, and I knew it was so. And her physician declared her insane, saying she was, quote, a victim of Ouija. Um, now, so that's not too sinister, but it is kind of crazy. And we'll see a connection um, a little bit later, but let's get to the next tale. So this is from Chicago. Shipped her ass to Western State, dude. Insane asylum. <laughs> yeah. So this next tale is from Chicago, 1921. Not as early, but still pre-exorcist. And um, this one is really right at the... Fr- one of the first Ouija booms. Um, So this is Ruth Townsend and her daughter Marion allegedly began to get sermons from the beyond via the Ouija board. And while Marion did not believe in spirits, and even Ruth herself said she was doubtful at first, um, after the Ouija had been talking to them for days, they said they just had to believe. Now, Ruth Townsend's mother died in 1921, and under the order of the Ouija board, the two women kept the corpse in their home for 15 days before burying it in their garden. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, Ruth Townsend, just like Eugenie from our previous story, was sent to a mental hospital in February of 1921. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) After admitting to doctors that her Ouija board convinced her to live with her dead mother's corpse for 15 days. Now, I mean, what are we thinking with these two cases? I mean, they don't involve outright murder or really, I would say, any harm. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of crazy people out there that could be like, oh, my Ouija board told me this and that. Okay. Really, did the Ouija board say that, or is, are you just right unhinged? using the Ouija as an excuse? Once again, deflecting right. blame onto the Ouija. And I'm not even saying deflecting blame necessarily. Like they could easily be so like out of their minds that they actually think that the Ouija is telling them X, Y, and Z, when that's not the case. Okay. okay. I think the first one is just kind of like a victim of the times type thing like anytime that someone was doing something a little out of the ordinary it's like oh you're fucking insane <laughs> right right yeah okay but i mean like she could have just been depressed you know like maybe not insane maybe she's just super bummed out about her boyfriend you know true 
But the second one, though, is like some fucking Norman Bates type shit. But they didn't kill the mom. Just kept her in the house for 15 days. That's kind of weird. Spend time with the corpse. It's like that short story, A Rose for Emily, where she... It's like a House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> okay, they're not like doing fucking Ed Gein shit with the body. <laughs> <laughs> so they're getting yeah. like sermons from Beyond the Grave that's telling them to keep their mother's corpse in their house for 15 days. I guess, I mean, a demon could do that. Okay, all right. Well, the whole insane thing is a great segue because I was finding a lot of stuff that was saying that, you know, maybe like Rob was saying, Ouija boards were just a good excuse to ship women off to the old insane asylums back in the day. You know, I mean, 1920s and earlier, those were the days of those old sprawling insane asylums, which now lay abandoned across most of the U.S. and seem to house a good amount of unwanted women, we'll say, or basically women who would just go against their husbands or even really societal norms at the time. And, you know, you can draw that connection to the spiritualist movement, which helped give rise to the Ouija board, is also somewhat connected to the women's suffrage movement, women's rights movements that were going on at that time, as you know, women got the right to vote in what, 1919, 19, or 1920? 1920, I believe. Yeah. So many who advocated for a lot of those women's rights were also spiritualists. So there's possibly this connection to the patriarchy basically saying, oh, this bitch plays with a Ouija board. She's insane. Ship her off. You know, <laughs> it's like that's like classic fucking uh, aristocrat um, patriarchy type shit. There's actually even speaking of TV episodes pre Exorcist, one step beyond, very Twilight Zone esque. Um, season one, episode fourteen, premiered in 1959. Uh, this one is free on Tubi for your viewing pleasure. Um, they actually had an episode titled The Secret that is basically this exact plot. The guy records his wife playing, um, and she's like talking to someone using a Ouija board, and he thinks she's cheating on him because he's not in the room. He's just listening. And eventually she says, oh, it's my friend Jeremy. And he just like immediately ships her off to the fucking insane asylum. And I won't spoil the episode, but, you know, watch it check it out basically fits perfectly with this narrative that you know hey the ouija boards aren't necessarily portrayed as evil before the exorcist and you know maybe with the whole spiritualist movement women's suffrage it was just an excuse of hey we got to get this bitch out of here you know (laughs) (laughs) what are we thinking i mean you know working at a former insane asylum briefly it seems like a lot of those cases were just that, just people, you know, whether it's like a crazy wife or a crazy mom or a crazy aunt that, you know, maybe at the time wasn't necessarily crazy. It's just like someone they didn't want to deal with anymore was made up for like a lot of the cases that, oh, okay, we're we're shipping her to the insane asylum. So, I mean, definitely tracks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now. Next one is uh, from the 1930s. So this case, buckle up. I mean, this one is fucking, this is probably the craziest one we'll get into. Lots of twists and turns. This one was dubbed by the papers as, quote, Scandal of the century. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a French sculptor 
named Henry Marchand. Is that how you would say that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. French Marchand. Okay, so this guy was a student of Augustine Rodin, uh, who sculpted The Thinker. Saint, my second favorite sculptor. Uh, this is also the guy who sculpted. Remember when we were in France and we saw the sculpture of the Gateway to Hell? Yes. Same guy that sculpted that. Oh um, yeah. So this Henry gentleman was a student of him, one of the great sculptors of all time. Now he moved to America with his wife and five children, having been commissioned to create lifelike dioramas depicting the culture of the Iroquois Nation for the New York State Museum. 1925, the president of the Buffalo Society of Natural Sciences requested Henry come work on similar displays for the grand opening of the Buffalo Natural Sciences Museum. So Henry, his wife, Clothilda, and their three sons and two daughters took up residence in a house just just a short walk from the museum. Now Henry, while creating dioramas in New York, would visit local reservations to research the culture and use people from the community as models for his detailed wax figures. Now, he quickly formed um, relationships with members of the local Seneca tribe. Some of these relationships with the native women became intimate, we'll say. Now, he would later claim that his wife had no problem with this, but how true that is is anyone's guess. (laughs) I mean, you get where I'm going out here? This guy's sculpting figures, and he's having relationships with some of these Native Americans. It's like the Titanic, you know? (laughs) I need you to go ahead and take off all your clothes so I can get an accurate depiction. Yeah, sculpt me like one of your French girls. Exactly. That's That's what the Native American women would say to him. So on March 7th, 1930... Clothilda was at home alone when she heard a knock at the door. Now, she answered to find a 66-year-old Seneca widow named Nancy Bowen, who, recognized, who she recognized from her visits to the reservation with Henry, um, so she invited Nancy to come in. Now, Nancy, who was not fluent in English and couldn't even read, asked Clothilda, quote, You witch? Now, Clotilda, she took this question as a joke, I'm assuming, and she replied, yes. <laughs> so she's like, "Like, just put yourself in her shoes. This lady asked her if she's a witch, and she's like, <laughs> Nancy, yes, of, of course I'm a witch, Nancy. You know. Now, Nancy then proceeded to attack Clotilda, striking her repeatedly in the head with a claw hammer. Oh, and at God, the, dude. <laughs> and at the end of the struggle... Clotilda lay dead. Now, Henry Jr., about 12 years old at the time, came home from school to find his mother on the floor in a pool of blood with wrecked furniture strewn about the room. Now, terrified, he ran to the museum to get his father, and they called a local doctor to examine Clotilda, who determined that she had been dead for about two hours. Now, detectives interviewed neighbors who claimed to see an old native woman earlier acting odd pacing up and down the street, staring at the house, trying to look into windows, that sort of thing. And an autopsy revealed that Clotilda had been attacked with a claw hammer and had a wad of paper soaked in chloroform stuffed down her throat, most likely while she was still alive. Yeah, that's wild, dude. Now, detectives also interviewed Henry, and based on whatever he told them, I did not find the transcripts, 
The detectives made their way to the local reservation to arrest 36-year-old Lila Jimerson for murder. Now, at the police station, Lila immediately ratted out Nancy Bowen, who was also arrested. Now, Nancy was a skilled tribal healer, and she claimed the murder was an act of self-defense. She said that Clotilda had recently used witchcraft to murder her husband, Sassafras Charlie. Now, the French witch, she claimed, had killed many other people with her dark arts and had been planning to kill her next. So, the confessions of Lila and Nancy are strange, and the trials that follow would take even more turns and get even stranger. So, going back, I guess, let's take a couple steps back. Nancy was devastated when her husband, Sassafras Charlie, died. Hell of a name. I know, great name, dude. Um, They had been married for most of her life, and Lila Jimerson, a Seneca Kayunga woman, originally from New York, offered Nancy some relief from her misery by introducing her to the Ouija board. Now, Lila, right off the bat, convinced the spiritually oriented widow that the Ouija was a great tool for communicating with the dead. The pair would hold regular seances where the spirit of Sassafras Charlie spelled out the horrible truths of his death. He'd been murdered with witchcraft by a French witch named Clotilda. Now, he even gave a description of the woman and her address. Lila was blown away, and she told Nancy that she knew of a woman of that exact name who fitted the description. Now, shortly after this, Nancy began to receive letters from a Miss Dooley. She had no idea who this was, but... uh, The letters confirmed everything Charlie's spirit had told her and revealed that she would be next. Now, we all know what happened next. She was convinced to murder Clotilda. Now, at the trial, Henry, who the media portrayed as a blameless victim, he denied having any romantic involvement with Lila, but this was clearly proven a lie when Lila's relatives went to a newspaper. Not even the police. They took this to a newspaper, a bundle of love letters proving they'd been having an affair for at least two years. Now, Lila was a candidate of the, for the death penalty, as it was pretty obvious that Nancy had been duped into committing the murder, and Lila was the real mastermind here. Now, the defense presented its entire case in a single day, showing that the letters from Miss Dooley didn't match Lila's handwriting, proving perhaps a third party was involved. And so it was claimed by the defense that this disproved the murder as an act of jealousy because jealous lovers generally don't have accomplices. Now, on the stand, Henry admitted that he liked to sleep with his models, saying, quote, So many to count. <laughs> now, Clay, he claimed that this was a professional necessity in order to rid the native women of their shyness so they'd pose nude for his wax diorama statues. He apparently had been helping Lila to get over her shyness for a very long time, and he even <laughs> went as far as saying that he didn't even love her. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know, this guy's a fucking savage. Now, the trial's coming to a close, and Lila collapsed with a lung hemorrhage due to tuberculosis. The judge declared a mistrial. Lila was sent to the hospital where she confessed to second-degree murder but would later go back on this. And Nancy went back to prison to await a new trial, which wouldn't happen until March the next year. 
And there's also, you know, with a lot I was reading about this, there's a lot of scandal with the DA and the press in general being racist towards Native people. They were saying this was an Indian crime by an un by untamed squaws, and uh, some people spoke. Jesus. Yeah, some a lot of people spoke out against this, saying, "Hey, this case is like a legal lynching. You know, you're not giving them a fair trial." Now Henry Marchand wasted no time in replacing his dead wife. By the time the new trial was set, he had already married Clotilda's 18 year old niece and skipped town. Hey, keeping it in the family, you know? <laughs> That's insane. Wow. God, Christ. Now, he was viewed as a liability by the prosecution. He was not invited to attend the retrial by either side. Now, eventually, these new trials get underway. Nancy pled guilty to manslaughter, but because of her age and the circumstances, she was sentenced to time served. And Lila's new defense lawyers played up the racist prosecution, presenting Lila as a naive woman who had foolishly fallen in love with the worldly womanizer Henry Marchand, claiming that she had no hand in the murder of his wife. On the stand, Lila threw Henry under the bus, claiming he told her he was tired of his wife and had tried to hire many people on the reservation to kill her. Somehow, Lila managed to get acquitted on all charges. She eventually married and moved to New York uh, near her old reservation where she lived until passing away in 1972. Uh, Despite the legal defense successfully presenting Henry as a suspect, he was never arrested or prosecuted and passed away in 1951. Now, what are we thinking of this case? I mean... I mean, I think it's clear Lila was pretty much like using the Ouija to kind of dupe this old lady, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, but if the glove doesn't her. fit, you must acquit. I mean, yeah. I think Henry probably wrote the letter. I was going to more of a hand in it. Yeah, I was going to literally his handwriting. Right. But uh, yeah. I was just going to say maybe he was the one writing the mysterious letters, but I mean, I guess. The lawyers couldn't put two and two together back then. And again, probably sexism at the time. They were probably like, yeah, fuck it, you know? Like, we got to get this guy to make some more fucking sculptures for us. We can't put him in jail. (laughs) Yeah, he's already married his new, fresh 18-year-old niece. Living his best life, you know? (laughs) Fucking brutal, though. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Very brutal. It It is a crazy tale. Now... Whatever happened with the old lady? She just had to fucking rot in the can? No, she got time served because of her age. Okay. Um, gotcha. So let's let's get into the next, uh, the final case that's, uh, again, pre-exorcist, so before boards are seen as evil. Uh, December 1933. Now, this one is described as one of the most bizarre Ouija board tales in American history, although, in my opinion, I don't think it's quite as bizarre as the one we just looked at, but I guess there's maybe some more mystery here. I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. So... Dorothea Irene Turley said that she was instructed by a Ouija board to spend to send her husband digging for buried treasure in the cliffs near their Arizona home while she spent time with a young cowboy. Mm. Little sus. <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, right off the jump, a little suspect here. Now, eventually, the board's instructions turned more sinister. As Miss Turley's 15-year-old daughter, Maddie, recalled, Mother asked the Ouija board to 
to decide between father and her cowboy friend. As usual, the board moved around at first without meaning, but suddenly it spelled out, quote, Kill your daddy. Now, Dorothea and Maddie asked the Ouija board if the shooting would be successful. It said that it would. They then asked if he would die outright. It said no. They then asked what should be used in the shooting. It said a shotgun. They then asked if they would get the ranch. It said yes. They then asked about the law. It said not to fear the law. Everything would turn out all right. Finally, they asked how much insurance would be. And the Ouija board said $5,000. Now, Dorothea had instilled a deep belief in the supernatural in her daughter, Maddie. So Maddie tried to kill her father, Ernest Turley, the next day, but couldn't. She lost her nerve. A few days later, she followed him to the corral, raised the shotgun, and took careful aim between his shoulders. Now She seemed to have lost her nerve again, and Maddie recalls how she thought of her dear mother and what all this would mean to her. So obeying the orders of the spirit board, a young Maddie shot her father twice in the back with the same shotgun he had given to her as a gift. Now, Ernest originally thought it was an accident. He didn't die outright, just like the board said. Little spooky. And he scolded her about gun safety before telling her to go get help. Now, I'm wondering, like, how did this interaction go? She shoots him twice in the back, and he's just like, God! Damn it. God damn it, Maddie. I told you I always act like a gun's loaded, you dumb bitch. Yeah, I mean, it's why. Plus, being shot twice in the back with a shotgun, how are you still alive? Yeah, how, I mean, also, how it was is it twice an accident? Like, yeah, once, it's like, maybe? Well, I mean, unless you're pulling some, um, what, what's that dude's name? The guy, the, the politician, Dick Cheney. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. L- unless you're pulling a Dick Cheney, like, come on now. So he's shot. He tells her to go get help. Now, while he's in recovery, a local sheriff started to catch on to Maddie's lies. He pointed out that the wounds her father had sustained didn't reflect her statement about accidentally dropping the gun and it going off twice from 30 feet away. And Maddie quickly broke down and confessed that the shooting was intentional and that she was obeying the commands of the Ouija board. Now, Ernest sadly died the following month, so poor went out for him. Now, Dorothea was arrested for the intent to murder and sentenced to 15 years to life. But she appealed and was released in 1936, only serving about three years. Maddie was shipped off to a reform school in Arizona where she would be kept until she was 21 years old. So, I mean, what are we thinking about, I guess, these cases we just looked at and especially like how early on they are and the Ouija board's involvement? I think it's kind of interesting to see the cases evolve. Basically, they're evolving from women being declared insane to essentially the boards leading to outright murder by the 30s. So it's like the boards evolving and getting darker and darker before being seen as full on evil by the 1970s. I mean, would we agree or do we think like the board in these cases is just kind of used as an excuse? Well, I think... You know, especially in these last couple of cases we're talking about, it seems like these fucking adulterous bitches are using it, you know, <laughs> as a trick. 
on like on kids or on the elderly it's like people that don't really know what they're dealing with and they're like oh you know like my mom or my friend is like helping me with this so they think they're getting like coaxed into it by some spirit but really it's like they're just fucking around for their own like malintentions so that's like progressively making it worse than it really is you know and that's really i guess kind of a flip of the two earlier cases of the men using it as an excuse to put the women in insane asylums now the women they're taking a page out of the men's book using it to dupe other people to kill the men yeah we gotta get rid of this guy or we gotta get rid of this fucking guy's wife so i can keep banging him yeah i mean i agree with rob on that i think that it's a little too suspect but who knows right i mean we're gonna find out tonight if if the ouija if we experience anything who it really but I, I, you know yeah. if you look at like crime and historical crime i mean you got guys like the you know i know we we don't really dive into true crime too much but you know the night stalker richard ramirez like when he was questioned about his motives he said that he was driven by a demon was he actually driven by a demon? Who knows? He claimed it was. It might have been. Or it may have just been something that he concocted to cover up his crimes or to. Right. I mean, I think in terms of him, he was trying to be like as scary and creepy as possible. You know, he was really into like metal and shit. I'm not like blaming that on like metal music or anything like that, but. It, you look at like the 80s and 90s and all the satanic panic type shit and Richard Ramirez basically just using it kind of like people use, you know how like the early punks would use like the swastika, like Sid Vicious would wear a swastika shirt just to like yep. fucking freak people out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. Like he's just kind of using it to fucking instill the most fear he can into people. Yeah. And I mean, like we're talking about a serial killer. So, I mean, it's. It's not the same, but it, in a way, in my mind, it is because, you know, people use mental insanity as an excuse to get out of, you know, um, serious consequences for crime. Uh, right. Well, what's that, to say uh, that, oh, it was the Ouija board that told me to do it. <laughs> that brings me to an interesting point, because the case that I wanted to talk about was in the early nineties, there was a murder trial that became a mistrial because the, the guy that was on trial, his lawyers found out that the jury used a Ouija board to try and connect with the lady that was murdered. And like, we're asking it, did this guy do it? How did he kill you? How did you die? And then that's how they got their verdict. One of the people said, yeah, I was, I, I was reading about this case. Yeah, And then they, like, all of the jurors admitted, like, oh, because, like, I mean, I'm assuming you guys have done jury duty before, yes? Yes. I've never done it. So there's, like, a point in time where the, like, bailiff will, like, leave you in the room, just the jury, to, like, talk about it, and it's just you guys in the room, and I guess, like, someone brought in a Ouija board and was like, guys we got to connect with this spirit and like ask her if it was him and ask her what happened and like 
So this was like in an actual court of law? <laughs> yeah. And wow. all of the jurors were like, yes, we used a Ouija board. We all touched the board. It said that he did shoot her. It was him that did it. And that's how we got our verdict. And then that is so they insane, were just like, uh, so they were just whoa. like, yeah, this is fucking bullshit. Like the judge was like, okay, we got to throw this one out. So it's like, that's kind of crazy. Cause it's like using it. They were technically using it for good, but like, I didn't dive deep enough into it to find out like, was that just someone fucking around with it? Like trying to push it one way or another, or were they actually using it for good? You know? But I mean, either way, it's like that's not a viable <laughs> tool to use in that situation. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. All right. Now let's let's get into some of the mechanics here, um, because I think like looking at all these cases, the million dollar question that seems to be on everyone's mind is how do Ouija boards work, or do they even work? You know, is there something to the board? Um, so Ouija boards were criticized by scholars early on, you know, a 1921 journal described reports of Ouija board findings as half truths and suggested that their inclusion in national newspapers at the time lowered the national discourse overall. Now, later on, a 1927 journal described them as vestigial remains of a primitive belief system and a con to part fools from their money. So paranormal and spiritual beliefs about the Ouija board have been criticized by the scientific community and are mostly banished to the category of pseudoscience. Now, scientists say that Ouija boards are not powered by spirits or evil demons. Now, this may be disappointing if you're an avid believer in that sort of thing. So sorry, Rob. Uh, You know, um, but more interesting, I think, is the belief that they are powered by us even when we claim we aren't moving the planchette. Now, I saw an interesting part in the Ouija book I was reading. So this was put forth by a gentleman. Like, I guess there was a lot of early battles on, like, like remember we talked about why did they brand it as a toy or game? Yeah. And some people early on were trying to get it branded as, like, a spiritual tool so that they, I guess, didn't have to pay taxes on it. But it eventually did get branded. Interesting as, move. Yeah, it did get branded as a toy or game, so they do have to pay taxes. But this gentleman, um, who I believe he was like somehow involved in the Parker Brothers Corporation, um, but he said basically in the mid seventies that we know the game is made of ordinary components manufactured by people not endowed with extraordinary powers. Our view is that the device is neutral. Whatever powers may be expressed through it comes from the players. And I think I would agree with the sentiment, and I do find that part of it more interesting than the possibility of evil spirits or demons coming through the board. Now, the scientific community largely agrees that the Ouija board works on a principle or theory that can be traced back 171 years from a psychophysiological phenomenon known as the idiomotor effect. Now, have you guys ever heard of this? I have. Negative, actually. Okay, so the idiomotor effect explains a phenomenon such as automatic writing, commanding a pendulum to swing in different directions, and the Ouija board. First put forth by English physiologist William Benjamin Carpenter in 1852, it's alternatively known as the Carpenter effect. 
But the word is derived from idio, meaning idea or mental representation, and motor, meaning muscular action. Idiomotor actions are unconscious, involuntary motor movements that are performed by a person because of prior expectations, suggestions, or preconceptions. Now, the results are caused by unconscious behavior or reflexive responses to ideas. A person might know the answer to a certain question that is being asked to a spirit through the Ouija board and then move the planchette involuntarily, either alone or with others. The more people that take part, the more likely the board gives consistent, believable answers. Also, the harder it is to detect who's actually moving it. It's like that uh, stick game. Have you guys ever heard? I forget the name of this, but it's like they had us do this at VMI. It's actually fucking crazy. You take like a long dowel and you basically have like two people put one finger on it and just try to lift it up. And there's a weight to it. It's heavy. You can feel it. But then you have, you add 10 people just with one finger. And as soon as you lift it up, it feels like it's about to fly away. It's fucking crazy. Have you guys ever like heard of that or tried that before? I'm not. No. I forget what it's called, but I would assume the planchette works on the same thing. You know, if you have six people with their hands on it, it's going to be harder to tell who's moving it, whether that be involuntarily or voluntarily, you know? All I know is like tonight. <laughs> Rob nor I are going to be consciously trying to move this thing. Okay, well, we want to see if we want to see if this is real. Well, you we, might have to practice. You might it might take some practice, dude. I've heard it takes like years of practice to get good with a Ouija. Board. Oh snap! Okay, well, you know, this is our first trial run, but um, you know, give it, give it, some, knows? give it a good try, though. You know, yeah, but I, I definitely think that if you have five people. All right, let's say you got a Ouija board on a table. You got you and four of your friends sitting around it. You got a candle lit. You know, you're you're, you're trying to talk to Auntie Susie. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. everyone's in on it, but there's one person in that five. One out of the five people that's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I'm, let's all just not try to move this thing. Like, let, like let's have a genuine experience. There could be that one person that's like, fuck that, and not tell anyone, tell anyone else and just kind of move it to speak certain things to basically freak other people out. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you're always going to have like hucksters, you know, or like people deceiving, just like the early days of spiritualism. Right, and I'm not saying that that's every instance of Ouija because... I like I said I I don't have experience in it, but um, I don't know. I I think that uh, I I kind of agree that that could happen, and that has happened plenty of times when people play this game. Right. I mean, yeah, that's probably like the main way that most people experience Ouija seances. Now, yep. Now, getting back to the scientific stuff here, various studies have been conducted in order to recreate the effects of the Ouija board within a lab. Now, under laboratory conditions, studies show the subjects were moving the planchette involuntarily. A 2012 study found that when answering yes or no questions, Ouija was significantly more accurate than guesswork. This suggests that it might draw on the unconscious mind. 
Some critics have noted that the messages allegedly spelled out by spirits were similar to whatever was going through the minds of the subjects. Other involuntary movements are known as automatism. Now, this correlates with the idiomotor phenomenon because both rely on unconscious movement. The difference is that the idiomotor phenomenon is based on the idea that just the thought that something can happen tricks the brain into doing it. Let's say, for example, you guys are both concentrated on the Ouija and you're both thinking about not moving the planchette. This leads to the possibility of the planchette moving, which then makes someone unconsciously move the planchette. So think of this like Inception. You know, when he tells him, don't think of an elephant, what do you think of? An elephant. Right. So think of it like that. It's kind of incepting a way into your subconscious. Or at least the idiomotor effect. That's what it, that's playing on. I mean, what are you guys thinking about this? If it's subconscious, okay. So the, the reason I bring this up, like if it's subconscious, let's say hypothetically, you know, Rob, Rob and I were talking about tonight when we do it, one person be blindfolded. So like either Rob or I, one person be blindfolded and they're the ones with the, with the planchette kind of acting or, you know, being kind of the instrument of the spirit spelling things out. The other person is kind of asking the questions and and writing the you know the answers down of the quote unquote spirit spiritual communication. So if it's subconscious and someone's blindfolded and it spells out coherent things, how would that work? Well, see, right off the bat, you're not using the board correctly. Oh, so I think you need to. Well, A, you need to use two people or it's not going to work. They say also it's if Rob believes in the spirits, it's very dangerous for one person to use the board. Right. But I'm saying I, I've heard that we watched a couple of uh, you know people that were talking about Ouija that are mediums and whatnot that, you know, who knows. But they say that one person needs to wear a blindfold or should wear a blindfold. Maybe practice, try it both ways, but I think you both need to be touching the planchette. It can't just be one of you or it's not going to work. Hmm. Well, I think that it can work, but I think if we're subscribing to this idea that it's a subconscious movement, that it would still be whoever, like if Billy's blindfolded or if I'm blindfolded, it's just going to be my subconscious thoughts pushing through. You know what I mean? It's not going to, like, even though I'm blindfolded, it's still going to go to, like, whatever I'm subconsciously thinking, you know what I mean? Yeah, but how can, but if it's, if, if you're controlling it, how will you know where the letters are on the board? I think I, ha I have the answers to your questions. Think of it like this. When, especially when we're talking about the idiomotor effect, which is, I believe, how the board operates. Think of it like the tulpa theory. Remember we discussed tulpas on our Men in Black episode? Yes. Okay. Um, so, Billy, I know you weren't on that episode, but a tulpa, think of like Slender Man could be seen as a tulpa. 
Slender Man is just an internet story. It's a myth that somebody made up. But in like, I think it was in like 2012 or something, two girls like stabbed another girl because they were sacrificing her to um, Slender Man. So that became a real manifestation in the real world. It became a real thing. Think of Ouija as the it's operating on the same effect. If you and Rob are both sitting there with your hands on the planchette and it's playing off of both of your subconscious minds working together, that's why the more people that use it, the more powerful or I guess more accurate it is because it has that many more minds to work off of. Okay, okay. Does this make any more type of sense? It, it makes sense. I'm just saying if you're blindfolded and you're doing this, how would you know like where the letters are on the board? Like let's say let's say you're blindfolded and you ask a question like how did you die? Well, you're and, not supposed to ask that. Well, <laughs> okay, so obviously I need to get more learned on 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 uh on Ouija, but I'm just saying if you ask them a question it's like where are you from? And it spells out let's say Richmond. You know what I mean? And you're blindfolded. Well, then I think in that case, that's kind of disproving the the theory. But I think the whole blindfold thing is like a newer ideology. But kind I, of like, yeah, it's, I guess the whole point it's is... a way to put a control in the experience. No, and I get that. Yeah, I mean, and that would be the ultimate control, I feel like, to really see if it's something beyond like even subconscious... Manipulation. If you're if you're saying like, okay, I'm gonna blindfold myself so that I don't know what's going on, but I think in that case, then you're opening yourself up to more like full giving full control to the spirit. So then you're becoming mm -hmm. like it's basically the spirit's moving through you as a control piece. So that exactly. could, that could also be kind of dangerous. It could be dangerous, but it could also <laughs> prove that it's not human subject, you know, manipulation. Does that yeah, make sense, it, Ryan? Am I making sense? Like, I think so, but I think you guys are playing on a level of like, I get it. Like, hey, let's try to prove that it's actual spirits, not idiomotor effect. But again, I think it's more interesting that it is idiomotor effect because I was looking into this one case known as the Philip, the Philip experiment. Have you guys heard about this? Have not. Mm -mm. So this was in the book I was reading. This is from the Toronto Society on Psychical Research. They basically conducted this experiment that became known as the Philip experiment. So a bunch of people got together and they made up this fictional character from history, Philip. And they all agreed on his backstory. This was complete fiction. Now, then they all memorized the backstory. They knew the story of Philip that they had created. So they all knew this, and they played the Ouija board trying to contact Philip. And Philip, basically, it stuck to the story they had concocted. And they said, hey, it's, it's, it's giving us answers that align with the fictional narrative that we've put forth so it's almost like willing this philip similar to a tulpa into existence and that's how they kind of prove the idiomotor effect but i guess like you know putting on a blindfold would basically take away some of that effect yeah right and that, which i that's, mean i guess try that 
I'm sure. I'm sure the cup's not going to move anywhere. Right. We'll right, see exactly, though. Because, but because, and that's fitting with my belief that I don't think it is spirits. I think you guys are the medium through which the board operates. So you need your subconscious and you need to be fully aware and in the moment and concentrated on the board for it to actually move and feel like something else is moving it because it's playing on your subconscious. I truly believe that. And I think that's more crazy than fucking spirits or some stupid fucking Catholic demon. Jesus. I wouldn't say crazier, but it's definitely fascinating. I I can definitely definitely see what you're saying though think of that as a way to tap into the collective unconscious you could get you could tap into your unconscious and maybe fucking write a brilliant poem or a brilliant song for survive the night if you survive the night exactly (laughs) yeah we may not survive the night rob um we may die now speaking of the the fill up, I don't want to play it now. Okay, well, what you guys should do is start off with simple questions, no blindfold, simple yes no questions. If that works, then you could ask it more complex questions, and if you get good enough at that, then maybe throw in the blindfold. Um, but you know, speaking of this, and this will play perfectly into your um your divination that you do tonight. There is a way to um i guess this is similar to the tulpa the philip experiment thing it's um a way of divination called sugan you ever, you ever heard of this no in negativo negativo what is it it's when you sugan this dick That's amazing. I was not expecting that. I was expecting some like epic ass fucking statement from Ryan like usual. And then he comes out with that. I got to throw that one in there. Um, Similar to the Sakon method. (laughs) Yes, very similar to Sakon or Ligma divination. Um, So let's get it. Let's get let's fucking round this one out, guys. We've been beating off the dead horse here now. Literally. Yeah, let's get to some conclusions. So I do think that the Ouija board holds its own unique place in American culture, as is evident with the history we just looked at. The Ouija board is a cultural touchstone that has seemed to affect every corner of society from the board's inception to present day, from religious movements to literature, film, TV, music, even finding its way into the lyrics of Morrissey, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the works of Norman Rockwell. The Ouija board is certainly an important piece in the fabric of Americana. Now, is there anything truly evil about the Ouija board? Can Ouija boards be used for good as well? What do you guys think there? Uh, I think kind of how we touched on earlier that, you know, basically at the conception of them, it was used as a means for contacting like lost loved ones or good spirits. And then kind of like how the Ouija board itself evolved over time. Uh, the, the use behind it became more um, sinister, I guess would be a good word. Okay. Like how we mm-hmm. saw, you know, different tales of women using it for their like, own misjudgment or like 
you know, the lady trying to convince the old shaman woman that she had to kill the French witch, you know, which was all a fabrication just so she could keep banging this guy. So right. it's like as as it keeps being used for like bad intentions that kind of open the door for like the exorcist to kind of portray it as a bad thing and you know then kids see like oh we can contact a demon through this thing and then they're trying to do that and then you know there's multiple cases of people being possessed by it or people saying like oh i contacted a spirit that told me to do this and you just kind of see like that snowball effect of where it started off as good maybe and then kind of worked its way through history as becoming like more and more predominantly evil even though you know i'm sure there still is people to this day that are out there trying to contact lost loved ones or using it to con just to see if they could contact a spirit not necessarily maybe good or evil just seeing like it like what they can come in contact with or just seeing if they're you know just trying to like bolster that belief in there is something on the other side kind of thing okay and you still think it's operated by spirits i mean i think that it I think that it's like a little bit of both. Like if you go into it, like fucking around with it and not taking it seriously, then you have a higher chance of like maybe coming in contact with something on the bad side. Whereas like if you go into it and you're actually like using it the proper way and protecting yourself and saying that you want to talk to a good spirit or you want to try and connect with, like your grandma or like your mom or your brother or something then that's not really opening the door as much for something bad to happen you know well yeah but so that would mean that it's operated fully by spirits because if you went into it joking and it's pulling on your subconscious wouldn't it just be lighthearted, jokey answers that you would get i mean what if you're you're entering in a third party that would be the spirit yeah but i what I was trying to say is like if you're not taking it seriously and like let's say you know you're having these bad thoughts at the time and something buried in your subconscious yeah so that could kind of like enable a evil spirit or a bad spirit to like work its way through rather than if you're like sitting down you're like oh like I really want to talk like is my brother out there can I talk to him like do you know who I am? Have I met you before? And you're like asking it like you're being more serious about it. Whereas like, I think if you're just like, oh, it's just a fucking poly game. I'm going to conjure up some demons tonight. Then it's like, ah, oh, shit. Like you could actually maybe come in contact with some crazy shit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do respect Rob's viewpoint in taking this kind of paranormal stuff seriously, because look, I've had paranormal experiences myself. I mean, I've, I've told both, you know, you and Rob about my experiences. I, I don't know if I would say they were 100% paranormal, but they were weird. Um, so yes, I'm open to that realm, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that you know, as we had discussed through this episode, um, throughout history, throughout really, you know, 
times of tribulation and despair, people utilized the Ouija board to connect with good and to reconnect with loved ones that they really, you know, missed and wanted to connect back, you know, connect with. And then, like you said, after the exorcist, the seventies jaws, like this kind of manic state of fear, like propagated by, by the media. And it kind of turned it into this like nefarious device. Um, I mean, I think like anything else, a lot of what we talk about with the supernatural is kind of, you can't prove it, you know? So it's, um, it's interesting. I do, I do kind of agree with the whole group, you know, group thought, I guess, for lack of a better term. I mean, when we were talking about like people manipulating, I guess not group thought, but like subconscious manipulation. Um, and I think that's very valid. Yeah. Group thought still. Yeah. I think that fits the bill. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I'm kind of on the fence with this one. Like, I think that supernatural entities exist. I believe that. Uh, I think people have experienced things for thousands of years. I mean, since the uh, since the earliest civilizations of man, there's there's been accounts of supernatural happenings. I just don't know if this is the medium to connect. I don't know if this is like a portal that connects everything. Right. Okay. All right. Now, I myself, I don't think there is anything truly evil about a basic Ouija board. I think they can be used for good. Um, And I do agree with the gentleman who said that the board itself is neutral. It's the person or user that is the power by which it operates. You know, the planchette is not going to move without somebody touching it. Now, going off this theory, this is most likely a way to tap into our own subconscious. And if there is a part of the unconscious mind shared by all humankind, some product of ancestral experience or collective unconscious, could we perhaps be tapping into that? I mean, like we saw with the evolution of the board how you guys just talked about, how it's viewed by the public. Could this viewpoint dictate the very nature of the board? Rob, I think this is what you were getting at. Upon its release, the board is harmless. It's a wholesome parlor game. Throughout the years, the more we see the board being portrayed as evil and more groups opposing its use, and post-1973 with The Exorcist, the more murders, possessions, and sinister acts get blamed on the Ouija board. Now, is this no different than some of the major religious organizations of the world essentially blaming all the evil we see on the demons and devils from hell? We seem to have a need to personify the evil we see and experience in this world instead of facing the possibility that this is something that resides in all of us, deep or maybe not so deep within our own subconscious. Or... Are we so determined to avoid acknowledging our own sinister nature that we deflect the blame of our potential for evil on a manufactured and mass-marketed parlor game? Parlor game. And there you have it. Simple parlor game, gentlemen. Um, I mean, did you guys have any closing thoughts before we before we sign off on this one? All I got to say is I'm looking forward to this Ouija experiment, Rob. All right, hopefully it doesn't end in one of you guys being murdered. Hopefully well, not. Uh, high high <laughs> probability. 
Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> You're not making me want to play this with you. I'm just kidding, man. I'm, All right, well, you know, Loyal Legion, stay tuned for how Rob and, and Billy's Ouija experiment goes. Maybe one of them will wind up dead. Maybe um, they'll have a cool story for the next episode. Well, I, I told Rob, if we do conjure something... I'll be like, you know what? Um, it was Rob's idea. Just just follow him home. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, that's cool. I'll be good. I think you guys will be fine. It's the idiomotor effect, like we said. It's your own subconscious. You have nothing to fear but the fear that resides in, in each of you. Well, that could be pretty terrifying. Well, there you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, far and wide, that is our history of the Ouija board. On this one, I want to cite Ouija, the most dangerous game by Stoker Hunt, AmericanHeritage.com Ouija by James P. Johnson, um, SmithsonianMag.com for the strange and mysterious history of the Ouija board by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, uh, and www.williamfool.com. There's actually a lot of good information in early history on this website. Um, so check that out for more information. Also, shout out to everyone on the feedback for the t-shirts. Uh, we do have a new run coming soon. There are some new items that I put on the spring site. Um, so check those out. But like I said, we, we are going to have a couple runs on a a higher quality brand like Comfort Colors coming soon. So stay tuned for that post. I'll make a post and advertise about it once I have those in hand. Um, also, shout out to uh, the band Demiser. Um, I've been having some good conversations with their uh, bass player who actually hit me up on the Instagram. Um, shout out at Dumpster Dick on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> And shout out nice. to Miser as a whole. It's like uh, I've been I've been fucking getting into it, dude. They're like black thrash metal. They brand themselves as group from South Carolina. Check them out yeah. on Spotify Sounds or uh, Bandcamp. Yeah, kind of similar to like Inepsi or Venom or Motorhead. Fucking badass, dude. I've been fucking loving it. Um, and also shout out to uh, Josh Montgomery. Uh, he's been sending me some funny stuff on the alien mummies that are coming out of uh, Mexico. Shout out to Mexico, dude. Exactly, bro. <laughs> yeah. Bringing that shit to Parliament, um, you know, or not Parliament to the Congress. This ain't England, you know. If it, it, I mean, hey, keep hitting us up on the Instagram. I like uh, interacting with all you guys out there. And if you or anyone you know has any good tales or experiences with using a Ouija board, let us hear them. Leave us a message at six one nine eight six 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 four three two. Uh, all autumn long, we're going to be screening the messages we get on this line. So if you got some paranormal stories, some strange encounters, alien encounters, uh, maybe you're a government whistleblower, or maybe you just want to leave us a nice message, give us a call. Uh, maybe you'll be featured on an upcoming episode. Once again, that number is 619-866-6432. And on that one, stay vigilant. Stay safe out there when you're playing with your Ouija boards. Maybe you want to be a model for an upcoming podcast sculpture we're working on. Leave us a leave us a message, you know? Yeah, direct those to Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Loyal Legion, as always, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you know the deal. Podcast from outer space. Hit us up on the IG. Hit the new number Ryan just dropped. 
podcast from outer space.com. You can check out our merch store. As Ryan said, we got some new stuff coming up. That's pretty sick. So you're going to want to get your hands on that. Uh, and you know, as always, thanks for tuning in guys. Yeah. Um, this has been a fun one. I feel like we've been kind of all across the board in terms of, you know, where we're at, I guess, Ryan, you and I are kind of more on the same page, but Rob proved me wrong tonight. You know what I'm saying? Um, Thank you so much, Loyal Legion, for the listens. Uh, you know, keep tuning in. We're entering spooky season. Halloween's coming up. We got some really dope topics to cover with you all. Um, and with that, we appreciate uh, all the listens. And y'all have a great rest of your September. See you on the other side.